would you describe yourself, my good man? Would it, would it be the best way to say that you are a, a martial artist, an animist, a practitioner, and all-round student of life? Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah, but I'm glad you did that, because it would have taken me too long to explain something more eloquent. Yeah, I mean, that's a fair. I mean, artist as well. Um, that's actually, I really want to get into, actually, because I really want to get into some of your art stuff, because I think it right. can help me work with that. So, um, I, you know, that's, fuck it, let's just start there. So, um, <laughs> your art, man. So, the last few weeks, months, I see you have a, you know, you, I don't know how you put it. I can see you struggling with some things, as all friends mm. do. And, and I think your art has been quite a, uh, an outlet for that. And your art is yeah. quite... In some would say, some would say quite horrific, some would say dark, some would say eclectic, uh, but I actually think it's quite beautiful. I think I'm just a dark person, and I think that the more I kind of come into terms with that, and I mean, I don't mean dark in a sort of sinister psycho killer kind of way, but uh, more of a gothic y kind of um, person. And it's one of those things, you know, when you grow up and you, you kind of have to get the job and get the house and have the kid and sort of put all those things aside for the normal life, it got repressed. And I think with the the recent issues I'd been going through, it came to the point where, you know, I'm 48 now and I wanted to do what made me happy. And it seemed that the more that I was putting this aside and getting on with finding the job, doing the stuff the more it was causing trouble. And I came to the position that maybe the reason that everything was falling apart was because I'm not doing what I should be doing. And it's almost like the universe was basically, look, if you want us to go this far for you to, you know, have nothing left but your art, we'll do it. So I think that for me, it's therapy. Um, and it's helped me with some stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm no way at the end of this journey, but it's, it's one of those things. I, I don't see it as dark. It's just, a reflection of who I am, and I, I'm kind of a someone who grew up with Hammer horror movies, and you know that kind of um, tongue-in-cheek gothic kind of thing, Penny Dreadful kind of thing. Um, so, what was the first horror movie you remember seeing? Um, wow, it's going to be a Hammer one. It's got to be because I remember spending nights with my mum watching horror movies together when I was about five. That was kind of like, like our sort of hour time when my little sister was in bed and we had that time together. So it would have been one of the Hammer ones, one of the Christopher Lee vampire ones or something like that. Um, but yeah, essentially it's my, excuse me, my art's my therapy. Um, and, you know, I'm pretty messed up, so I need lots of therapy. <laughs> it's, I think actually nowadays it's it's more acceptable to say that Things aren't so good behind the scenes. We, we're we all coping yeah. with that. And I think, in many ways, this lockdown has actually enabled that question to be more allowed. We can say that we're struggling. And I think that's... It's pleasant to say that. And when you talk to a friend who's struggling through life and you can and you have something to, com to compare or something to discuss with them, it's, it's, it's more allowed. It's more... Um, is it acceptable, the right word? Um I think, I think so. It seems to be that, that that's the only silver lining in this lockdown is it's given people, I shouldn't say the only one, it's given people the opportunity to see what's really important in their life, whether it be time with the family because they can't go into work or or lots of things. And I think people have sort of reevaluated their priorities 
Um, and yes, I think one of the things that is good is the fact that, especially guys, because there's that social stigma about saying, hey, look, I'm struggling, that this has allowed you know, people to talk about these things more freely, um, which can only be a good thing, I guess, you know. No, you're right. It, it is. It, to be more free, freely discussed is a, is a good thing for a lot of guys. And, and yeah. Guys do struggle. We struggle in a very different way. You see girls, mm-hmm. and I hate to be like stereotypical, will generally talk about their stuff in a kind of vexing way. Between each other, they'll kind of bitch and stuff. Is that enough for them? I don't know. But guys, we we don't say that stuff. We'll just say, you know, our ego stuff generally to each other. We'll banter with that. Yeah. And, and then the person we often want to discuss it with, often our partner, and that because you want to discuss feelings, it's for them it's too much. Or that it's yeah. they they are the ones who often are the root cause of that, or they are the, the contributor to the stress and the and the, the the anger, the frustration that you want to share. And you want to talk it out with them, but actually that often is the worst thing because they they don't see it in the way that you do. And they've got their own frustrations <laughs> about you and they go away and bitch and you realise fuck who am I going to talk to <laughs> yeah I think there is that and, and you know especially maybe more from our generation is that you know it was kind of men suck it up and you know get on with it and I think it's probably a good thing that we're seeing with sort of the millennials and more recent that men are feeling able to come out and, and say how they feel because we we know there's a link to repression and mental illness um, and struggling from that side, so maybe that's a good thing that that's coming out. But Who you, knows? But you've seen the state of some of these millennial people. They, oh yeah, they are just so, oh, yeah. they're just so far but on the. I don't. Know. It's like it's like the the pendulum has swung completely the other opposite just, end. Oh, and I, I guess somewhere in the middle it will find some equilibrium. Yeah, I but think... for now it's swinging from opposite ends. They're either complete wishy washy snowflake kind of <laughs> characters or their strong silent types who are broken inside because they can't you know i guess that's the 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 polarity of the two and hopefully somewhere in the middle it will find some kind of balance and we can get more of a uh, a rounded masculine <laughs> persona i don't know there is definitely a uh, almost a lack of masculinity now in yeah in the it media. seems to be that it's almost a demasculation that's going on. And maybe this is going towards the sort of the transhuman agenda in that, you know, to to break the the binary poles of male, female, you know, that there's now got to be, you've got to demasculate the male to basically get to a point where there is no real gender. Um, and that then takes you more down the road towards gender's not important, it's just transhumanism. Um, you are, maybe that, you are on the scale. Because we do see it, you've only got to look on social media and see, and, and in movies as well, for the last 10 years or so, guys are always the clumsy oafs, women are always the smart ones who can kick ass and do all the things, and it's kind of like there is some kind of movement to go down that route. Um, for what reason, we can only guess at, but I don't see it ending well. No. I think the, the 80s masculine image that we all grew up with yeah, is a dying. Yeah. 
almost toxic. You know, your Stallones, your Schwarzeneggers, these things that we were told were, this is what men should be. Now we're being told men should be um, metrosexual or, you know, very feminine in what we would term as feminine yeah. coming from that generation. It just seems there's a marked movement to demasculate men. Yeah. And in the pursuits that men found like hunting or sport or fighting or martial arts are, are demonized and what we're praised for is being in touch with our feelings and you know doing this that and the other and there just seem to be some movement I don't know if it's all paranoia from my side I'd almost you know I was uh, I, 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 I attended counselling this is just kind of what I want to talk about so I attended counselling for about 18 months uh, a few years ago and I found it really good. And one of the things we were talking about is why is there in the field of counselling and of psychotherapy and all that kind of thing, why are they all predominantly women? So all the, most of the counsellors are, are women who generally are, are quite, how do you say it, they're young, they're quite, uh, they're inexperienced in life. And mm. a lot of them, you know, I've got a few of my friends list on, on Facebook and social media, they appear to be the broken people. And... Um, and they are the ones giving advice to other people. And I see, I, I, I've got two specific examples, but I won't go into names. One, uh, one person constantly says how bad her life is, yet also advertises her services as a life coach. The other person, <laughs> but I don't go into so, physician heal thyself. And the other one is like a, a third year psychology student. He constantly writes about how bad things are for herself and her family, how terrible things are, uh, and then she constantly would say. Um, you know, come along to my psychology sessions, let's get you back on board, let's put you back in straight line. I've been going, how can the broken people be the ones to fix people? How does, yeah. how does that work? It, it's, it's scary. You can see on the one hand that someone who's broken might be internally looking for their own answers. Yes. And then I'll sort of, they go into those pursuits to find their own answers, really. Um, but it does seem crazy, because, you know, Surely the best advertisement of being a life coach is having a successful life. You can say, this is how I did it. Yep. Um, let's look how you're doing it and see where we can get you to where you want to be. It does seem weird that someone should have that view of life and then actually be trying to sell a perfect life. Uh, yeah. it, it seems nuts. It, it does seem <laughs> nuts. But I guess that it comes around to, the, is, there, is there personal internal therapy them to, to be this kind of, like, take on the persona of someone who's strong, who's confident, who's warm, and can listen, uh, the mothering aspect um, in their life. Is that is that their, they put on that hat, as it were, to do that, so they can have their almost self-therapy to struggle through other things? Maybe. I know with some people, I've got friends that have got, you know, been diagnosed with real mental illness, uh, heavy-duty stuff, and they often say to me, they're, they're, they're they would rather be helping other people because it's a distraction from their own issues. So maybe some of it's that. Maybe they go into therapy to help others because in helping others, they're able to kind of forget about their own stuff they've got going on. Um, I don't know. It, it is weird. But it, we know so little about the mind and how it really works that we're all just, you know, sort of in the dark, stumbling around. And I think people that go into therapy, a lot of people I knew, I knew someone who used to do um, NLP, went in to be, uh, on to be an NLP practitioner. He was the most broken person I knew. Um, so, I don't know, maybe it's that internal journey they're on 
um, that drives them into those subjects. And as they learn about those subjects, they then feel able to give advice. I don't know. But when you look at it on face value, it does seem crazy that broken people help fix other broken people or less broken people. It does seem crazy. I've seen, like, um, when often you see politicians talk to the layperson, there's almost this whole disconnect between... And hedges use the word education, or they they look at like, there's this particular photo I can always remember is Ed Miliband is on like the, this morning or whatever, and he's looking at this lady who's going through an absolute terrible time, and it looks like he's studying her. He has no idea what he's looking at. This woman's going through an absolute tragedy in her life, and there he is, he's leader of the Labour Party at the time. And he's looking at he has he was trying to study how she was reacting and what she was talking about, and and it was really interesting to see this a person who appeared to have no emotion. Try to work out what this person was doing. And I, I think that might be the case within the uh, political uh, hierarchy, as it were. They often have no idea what's really going on in the real world because they're not here. They're not seeing it in their constituencies. Yeah. They, they keep themselves I in think... the ivory tower. And I see that video. I, if I, when I put this video together, this picture, I'll add that picture to where we're talking about and you'll see what I mean when you watch yeah. this back. I think there's probably something about politics that brings out... The people that are psychopaths and sociopaths in society are drawn to positions of power, are drawn to positions of, um, you know, like into politics, into maybe law, into a position where, not that they go seek it, that the nature of that role in itself attracts those sort of people. And we do see it with politicians. They seem to be unable to empathise Oh, they can sympathise, and it all seems fake. They know how to fake it, but they just don't seem to be able to connect with people um, on a real level where they've experienced grief or poverty or any of these things. Um, and I've, it, it does seem that a lot of them are just psychopaths. <laughs> <laughs> but I, in many ways, I guess what we're talking about here is... Um, is coping mechanisms maybe so yeah your your figures your your artwork i guess is your outlet for that so how, yeah, how, how did you so. how did you get into that what what um i've it's always been a big part of my life is when i was younger um i remember being at um primary school i would have been probably six or something like that and um making this huge zoo out of clay with all these little caves and all these little animals in it and and I remember the teacher at the time being really impressed and I was thinking well I'll just make him what I'm seeing in my head um, so it's, art's always been important to me and with all the abuse and stuff that I went through while I was younger and, and the bullying and stuff it was always something I turned to whenever if everything was broken I'd go back to my art and I think recently I it, as from a couple of years ago, I just came to the conclusion maybe the reason everything's falling apart is because I'm not doing what I should be doing because the art is always what I fall back to. So how about I just pursue that properly? Um, and since I've done that, I've felt a lot better. I mean, I, you know, I'm nowhere fixed, but it does seem to have... I think sometimes we're here for a reason in life and if we don't follow what we're meant to be following, we get we have issues. It's, we, we get that disease, disease, disease um, with ourselves because we're not doing what we feel we should be doing in life. And in your twenties, that's okay. You know, you can work for your drink money at the end of the at the end of the week. But I think when you reach sort of your late forties and you start to look at life and you think, well, I want to do what I feel I'm here to do now. I haven't got as much time. The clock's clicking. You know. Um, 
to do what makes me happy rather than what pays the bills. Um, and trust me, art does not pay the bills, but it makes you feel happy if that's your calling, whether your calling's art, whether your calling's working with animals or nursing or, or whatever. Um, so yeah, it's it's just one of those things that's always been a part of my life, but I've always put on the back burner because it's not a real job. You can't pay your mortgage, you can't raise kids, you can't do that kind of thing. And I think it got to the point where I was so tired of putting it to the back burner, it was actually causing me mental anguish on top of the other stuff I was going through. And because I've always come back to the art, it just seems to make sense that I should pursue the art, you know. A starving artist, though. Well, I don't know one who isn't, to be honest. I don't, I think unless, I... you want to, unless you want to cut a cow in half and stick it in a... A cabinet or something. Do you see? You see these stories about like modern art, you know, like a pair of glasses like on the floor, or a rubbish bag, and yeah, it's worth millions. Yeah. And it's like, what the, f- what the fuck is this? I guess it's you know, it's subjective, isn't it? It's in the eye of the beholder. But uh, for me, it, it, I, I think that people tend to know what they're here for, or, or, or know when something's not right in themselves. And for me, pursuing the art properly put me more in tune with my what I thought I should be doing or what I felt I should be doing in life, really. So it's been a godsend, really. So the kind of art that you do, I mean, I guess it'd be wise perhaps if I showed some pictures at this time in the video version. So yeah. um, would, do you want to, have you got a piece nearby you can describe? I haven't, no. Um, they're all in the other room. <laughs> well, my studio um, in <laughs> okay. the other room. But if I was to describe it, there's kind of... A duality to it because there's this it's all very abstract um, so there's the acrylic pouring which is playing with art in, in its fluid nature um, and then there's the the dark gothic kind of stuff that I do um, which is like horror props for um, you know gothic decor in houses and for and props for horror um, movies or, or stuff like that and it seems to be those two parts one's very beautiful One's very dark. I don't know if that says something about my character. Or it's think, bipolar in its nature or something. I don't know. You probably find out a lot of artists perhaps have the same natural yeah. feeling that way. That they have the stuff that they might. They have their darker collection. They have their light. It's like, it's like, like this is the horror light. This is the horror light, and this is the horror full on. <laughs> but you know, I grew up with artists back in the eighties. Um, you know, like Geiger and, and those kind of people. And I've always seen beauty in that kind of what people would say is dark. I, I imagine, but I've always seen the beauty in that. Um, and, and also the story of the artist itself. It kind of gives it more of a. I don't know what the word is. Gives it more. I don't know. I'm struggling for the word, no, but it, it just adds to the. It adds to it. It adds to its appeal and its beauty when you know the story behind the person. Because when you buy a painting or a piece of art from someone, you're not just buying something off the shelf. You're getting a bit of the energy of that artist, what they were feeling at that time, what they put into the the item they're making. Yeah, I always um, think about selling a story, isn't it? You, you don't just yeah, give a piece of the art. You actually the, the history behind each piece you buy rather than producing something off the shelf, which is basically just it's got nothing in it. And a lot of the stuff that I do horror-wise is the unique one-offs. Even when people have asked me, I want one like this, it's never been the same. It's never the same each time. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's, it's a uniqueness. And I think a lot of artists do not like repetition. They like to be a bit different every single time they do something. Yeah. Um, the ones I've spoken to. 
so a lot of the stuff I make is it's bespoke. You'll never get one of the one exactly the same again. And that's how you should sell it. You should sell it as you know that should well, be the appeal. You know, that's the way I push it. But the thing is, I've I've been reluctant to do the hard sell because for me, it's not really something as a living. It's it's something I do for me, and if people actually like it, great, they can buy it. If they don't, great, I'm going to do it anyway, regardless, because it's a type of therapy for me. And I suppose that's business-wise not the best view to take of it, but it's it's how I see it. So that's if so. someone says, I want, I don't know, a box to do a Ouija board-themed curio box, and I want it just like this, I couldn't do it just like that. I've done two very similar but I'll always try and make it individual for each person because they're, you know, it's good to know that this is a one-off. There's only one of these in the world like this, and I own it. Um, well, that's I know that's hard. No, no, that's because that increases its value. That's importance. So, in my suggestion, I would be, I would perhaps write write the statements about it. You know, before you perhaps go into a project, just to write a statement of intent, and then perhaps write one after of what the journey was like, maybe even like a few words in for a couple of sentences like a blog, and that way you've got a statement to go with it when you you sell it and give it away, or when you promote it, it's like, this is where this is where we were, this is how it ended up, and there was the journey in between of things that did and didn't work, and um, <clears throat> there's an idea uh, I wanted to create with this, it was for this intent, it was for this purpose, and I was inspired by this, because yeah. that gives it that texture. Yeah, because like with the heart, the heart one I did. I don't know if you saw that one, but um, it was the heart in the box. It was basically an idea that came out of my failed relationship from a few years ago. In that each one of the post-it notes that are in there are a promise that was made to me that wasn't kept. So I've got all the post-it notes in there of the things she'd said. I've got the heart that's magnetised to the back of the box, so you can take it out. Um, and and I've got some. You know, it's got blood on it, and it's got this idea that my heart was ripped out because of these failed promises that are on the post-it notes. So there's a story behind most of the things that I do, um, rather than just doing it because it's spooky or just because it's gory. But it's hard to it's hard to tell people that because people don't understand what the journey's been or what the message is behind it. Um, I mean, that's quite powerful therapy because every time I open that box, I can see, okay, these were all lies. Don't be upset about something that wasn't real, you know. And I can close that box, and it's closed and put away. And it's kind of like, okay, I've opened it, I've felt those things, I've closed it and put it away. Um, but how do you write that up to tell someone to sell it? Like, you can't really. You've, you've just got to explain what you were going through at that time. You know, I might look back on that in five years and go, God, that was cheesy as fuck. But at the time, it was quite a powerful healing. Yeah, and that, that's, yeah. The, that's the important thing. That's what that's the message was. So talk to me about your... your. I think I wanted to, I kind of came into this thinking I'd really like to talk to Sean about animism because I don't know fuck right. all about that. And I won't pretend that I do. I, I understand it, its abstract sense and its terminology, but I don't understand it. So I was kind of wondering if you could throw me um, a bit of an understanding about animism at me. From some, perhaps you can explain it. Wow, a huge subject... Um, yeah, it's, I mean, I don't even know. I mean, I draw names to describe things because I don't know better terms. I would say I'm an animist and I believe in everything around, everything has a certain amount of spirit to it. Because let's face it, that's what anime is. It's Latin complete spirit. Is in every living thing. It contains some of this. And in animism, for me, it's, 
it's understanding the spirit in all these things, what makes them up, what is each life force in each item, and you respect with it, and you work with that, um, and whether it's a tree, whether it's a rock, whether it's a stream, and understanding what runs in the background of, of all living things, and, and venerating that, and approaching those energies should you need help with something. Um, you know, and it, it seems to be that the older you go back in human um, society and evolution, um, you know, the anthropology of things, it seems to be that's where we started on our journey in the, the personifications of things that were like thunder and electricity and things we did not understand. They became personified in objects, in items, in things in nature. Um, and it seems to me that aligning myself with that makes me feel more complete as a as a soul as, a, as, a, as an energy as a entity you know if you look at um, Aboriginal stuff or stuff from tribal Africa or you know stuff from Haiti and the Caribbean it seems to be the closer you can get to nature the better it is um, and the more energy you can draw from those things and the more that uh, finding a synchronicity with those energies helps you feel better, do more, I don't know. It's hard to explain. It's really hard to explain. It's a, basically a belief that everything has a spirit and communicating with that spirit and aligning yourself with that spirit, whatever it would be, helps you. Okay, so uh, I kind of, I'm looking at that as a, if I want to draw on an animal spirit, so like a wolf or a snake, or um, I would take those characteristics on board in some kind yeah, of this is a very basic form. It's sympathetic magic. It's being able to go, okay, I want to, I don't know, hurt someone, so I make a representation of that person because I can't hurt the original person, and I stick pins in it. You know, it's a sympathetic magic. By doing one thing to one thing that symbolizes something else, it's almost like the energy makes it happen to the real person. It's like that kind of idea that affecting, like the, the cave paintings that show hunting scenes um, in France, a lot of those were, they now believe, showing the successful hunt before the hunt had happened, so that showing the successful hunt created a successful hunt. Oh, I got you. It's okay. like sympathetic magic, and I think the older you go back in human evolution, the older, the more you tend to see that, and it's only with the advent of you know, Abrahamic religions, where it seems to be more about control. Some person says this, I must do this, or something nasty happens to me afterwards. Whereas with the, these older faiths, it seems to be, you go out into nature, you talk to the trees, you talk to the rivers, you just become one with them, and, you know, we're all animals. Whether we say we're clever animals with opposable thumbs, or, you know, we're all animals, and animals are part of nature. So, you know, by association, the more closer you can get to nature, the better you are in your spirit, I guess. So that's how I would describe it. But I think it's such a subjective thing that, you know, other animists might say it differently. No, that makes sense. I, I, when you, what I say makes sense is that how the other animists might say that. And yeah, because I've heard similar things that I guess I, I was under the understanding of you would take on board characteristics, you know, to have an intention go out. And I guess that's what, pretty much what you've described. And, uh, yeah, I think that maybe that, you know, people that, 
like the old story of the berserkers, you know, they put on the wolf pelt or the bear pelt, they take certain hallucinogenic mushrooms, and then, you know, there's a lot of drug use that seems to be going right back um, to our very early um, origins. That it seems to be a lot of the work of Hancock has talked about this as well in some of his later work, is that the the, the jump in human evolution seems to be linked with our use and discovery of hallucinogens. Yeah, I uh, somehow a... that that opened us to, you know, we I mean we used the stone axe for ten thousand years. You know, it worked. We didn't have to change it. But somewhere on the line, we thought, mm, let's make something new. Yeah. It's it's something that sparked a part of us that maybe wasn't stimulated before when we were just hunter gatherers and we were just hunting to survive. You know, maybe the elusive hallucinogens opened up something and allowed us to um, turn the antenna on and yeah, pick up what's so, out there. Uh, the, the guy you're referring to, uh, Graham Hancock, there, he'd uh, yeah. not long done a foreword for a book uh, by a guy called uh, Brian uh, Murinescu. I don't hear him audible. Um, the book is called The Secret Relig- Secret History of the Religion with No Name. Um, and I was really fascinated by this. Uh, I, I downloaded it on Audible. And the author is the one who's reading it. He's a, he's an author who is a scholar who has an interest in, in the classics. So he knows his, uh, his pre-biblical stuff. He knows his, um, his Roman uh, mythology and his Greek mythology. And uh, can read Sanskrit and so on. Um, Sounds so, like a great guy. I do. He's, he's, you know, when you listen to him, you can hear his passion and the way that he's talking. He absolutely loves what he's talking about. His, his passion of discovery. Um, so, what he's discovered, or rather, he's putting words to that hasn't been discovered for a long time, is that uh, you know, um, certain beers and wines that existed in in prehistory um, were more than likely what sparked off you know um, that cue going forward. As I say, John. Do you, to, do you want to get your set, reset up again there? Yeah, I moved my very sophisticated pile of boxes and now I'm adjusting the picture to uh, get it back to where it was before. Just shuffle it. Is it oh, okay. oh. I can see, I can see, I can see the There you go, I'll hold it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, so um, I'll, I'll, re- I'll reiterate what I was saying here. So, uh, yeah. Brian Morisquero, he's a he highlights his own journey while trying to discover these things. So he's found out there was like um, an ergot-infused beer that basically had psychogenic effects um, back in prehistory. So when yeah. an ergot basically is a is a kind of mold fungus that grows on mm-hmm. barley, it grows on um, a lot of wheat. So in Germany, it's really popular and they have to shred it off. It's actually the reason for the purity law. Um, but in earlier times, in, in pre-Greek, and we're talking like Dionysian history, um, that was... A, women generally uh within a certain collective in the kitchen would create ergot infused beer and would give that to people and particularly ergot infused wine and that was the basis of the kuklion and these um psychedelic substances that would give people access to the gods um mm. really powerful stuff and that 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 religion of, basically it was pre-sacrament and very much like the christian sacrament the uh, the eucharist in fact it's based yeah. on on that transition from dionysian to, to christian and how that whole um, transition between like early AD, uh, late BC, when that happened. Um, the early followers of Christ and the previous followers of Dionysian were in the same area, the same place in Galilee and so on. So they think that that's actually how the transition happened. How do you infuse like 50,000 followers? Well, you give them the same Eucharist with the same story and you allow them 
but it just now has a new name because of the way that the Romans occupied the area. And mm. So these, these um, Eucharist-based celebratory wines had um, were spiked with things like nightshade. They, they had um, various um, hallucinogenic properties to them to give them direct access to the gods. And the kind of the cave paintings and the, the walls and, and the decorations they put around them are very much the same stuff that was rediscovered when they found LSD. Mm. Um, and then there was a book that was released back in the 60s that kind of alluded to that. Um, and that that particular gentleman, obviously, he put that out there as a hypothesis. He, he, got, he got scrubbed from the scientific record. You know, he lost his position yeah. at the university. And then it's only in 2017 they've actually now found these bowls that were being used by those... Um, very priests and in the day that actually now verifies that they indeed were having especially spiked wine back in the day that was given them those um hallucinogenic experiences powerful i guess that way it gives everybody a sh everyone's sharing in that shared experience yes um you know it's not just something that's you know we say this and you and you do as you told you're you're sharing that same experience because you're all taking this um this same drink with the same drug in it and it's like this shared hallucination i mean or yeah. hallucinations depending on how strong it is yeah, of course because people were experimenting with it at the time and as people were moving yeah. around like the mediterranean uh, sometimes the recipe didn't go quite right because it, it, <laughs> it, it because um and because it, it, it figures that it contained a lot of um plants that had heart stopping properties particularly like nightshade yeah. um that yep. would cause you to, you know, to pass out for sometimes days at a time. Um, yeah, because you know the nightshade, the belladonna, yeah. um, you know, all these kind of things—they're all contained digitalis, so they're all affect the heart. Yeah, so they think that what was happening is that so that's why certain wines were then banned, certain drugs and beers were banned because it was having those kind of effects because they didn't get the recipe quite right. And then that was rediscovered later. You've got on. to break a few eggs when you're making the cake. Yeah, you know? so it's a really fascinating book. Actually, I'd recommend you uh, have a listen. Um, I'll take a look at it. Yeah. Yes, and also that Graham Hancock wrote the foreword to that. So. Yeah. yeah, I think he wrote something. I don't know if it was his supernatural series That's or right, yeah. or something, but he did say in one of the podcasts I heard that you know he's a big believer in the in the fact that hallucinogens are what triggered that thing in man. Yeah. To be more than just animals, you know, yeah, to, a, to pursue that. There's another book called, like, a, Was Jesus a Mushroom that kind of uh, goes down the same line. That's yeah, back in the 60s. Yeah, so. I've heard that one as well, um, um, uh, relating a lot of the old, very old um, pre-Christian and Christian artwork and imagery to being mushrooms, to being, you know, a mushroom shape and... Yeah, I've I've heard that, and it's interesting. It really is, but there just seem to be some correlation between us discovering those kind of um, you know plants and and fungi and stuff, and a spirituality awakening in 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 people. Yes, I think when you discover that, oh my God, there's more than me, it makes you go, oh hello, who are you? <laughs> let's work together. Let's, yeah, let's start. Yeah. To, we need to make more of this. Let's plant this together at the same time and. We'll have some for all of us. I think that's how agriculture kind of developed, and maybe. Possibly, maybe. Well, we need to plant some more of these cool things, so they just get a bunch of seeds and plant a bunch of stuff. And you know, this stuff you can eat, and it doesn't have this effect, but fills you up. And this stuff gives you this effect. It does make you wonder. I mean, I guess it would have been an experimental journey, but 
you know, maybe that was part of it. Maybe in, you know, trying to cultivate nightshade, they had to plant some wheat as well. I mean, who knows? Yeah, and wheat's one of those uh, weird plants, a weird grass. Yeah, because obviously with, with, with wheat and stuff, that's where you get the, the ergot. Yeah. Um, in fact, it, um, there's, a, there's a new field of science he talks about here. It's called uh, biochemistry archaeology. And there's only like mm. there's only there's only a few people who generally are looking at that right now uh, because it's so relatively new science-wise. Um, so it's where they're. But it makes so much sense, doesn't it? Testing chemistry within on archaeological um, pots and uh, pans and so on. But it's never been done. Are you thinking why has it never been done? <laughs> yeah, it does make a lot of sense. But maybe it's the stigma because you're mentioning drugs and hallucinogens and you know a lot of cases people are rel- scientists are reliant on funding. And some universities might not offer funding depending on whether some subject brings negative attention to them. And there could be a whole host of things. I mean, probably the same things that people who want to investigate the paranormal face, you know, or aliens or that kind of thing. Oh, they're taboo subjects. We don't want to talk about that nonsense. Ergo, you don't get the funding. Ergo, it's not investigated. Yeah, there was a. I was listening to uh, Coast to Coast a few weeks ago. And it could have even been on um, George Norris' show on Gaia. Uh, the guy he had on, um, oh, it's going to bug me, I know what it is. It, he talks about that when he was in operations in the army, they found a lot of the the size subjects they were researching. They weren't getting cancelled for any other reason they weren't successful. It's just that the, po- the political people who were in charge at the time were really religious, because they were generally Republican right. and so on. So they actually thought they were bringing around satanic stories or the devilish stuff so they actually pulled funding um just because they that makes that sense if you think about the happen. um stargate stuff the the remote viewing and stuff that, that, that's, that that's what be, it is yeah yeah it was being funded and then you know it's it's getting cut all of a sudden but yet we know that there's a lot of you know a lot of stuff seems to have worked with the with the remote viewing it seems to have been something that was successful yeah and again, like you say, it could be due to the the, the religious people in the background. That's right. Saying, he said, said that the religious people in power. He, he he very hesitated to say the Republicans, who are predominantly fundamental Christians, uh, were but actually, I think they are. What were, were actually they were really worried about? They actually would bring around the end of the world. <laughs> so they actually pulled funding. This is a devil's work. Yeah. So it's just like wow. <laughs> but you can see why if they, if that is their faith yeah. that they need to know yeah. they need to protect people. That might be what they do, but I guess the paranormal is, I guess, a place to to dip to next. Um, mm. So, how is the paranormal these days, man? How is how is <laughs> how is it? Um, it's paranormal. Um, it's above normal because by by fuck, I've seen some crazy shit recently. Well, I, I mean, you've only got to look at the news now. It's like the paranormal's become the normal. Uh, it's like living in the twilight zone. It is. Um, it is. Um, every day, I now see on mainstream stories of like weird objects in the sky. You know, the, the US, yeah. of course, declassified the fact that they've got vehicles they've seen that they can't identify and they're not theirs. Um, I think that is fundamentally amazing for the government to come out and say that. It's a big thing, but here's where I put my tinfoil hat on. It seems to me like they're trying to. An element within government in the US, we're talking fundamentally here, um, is trying to change the narrative or trying to own the narrative. This whole reach to the Stars Academy and all this stuff, a lot of the people who are releasing this information are ex-CIA. They're ex-intelligence people who've made a living from lying and spying. 
Um, so I'm instantly um, dubious about the stuff that comes out. It seems to be it's a release disclosure, but they're controlling the narrative. They're renaming UFO to a UAP. Um, they're, a business is set up to test and build this technology they find. To me, in my tinfoil hat, it's going towards the idea of Project Bluebeam, in that there may be some staged alien invasion down the line, and ergo, we need to all band together to fight this. And the fear, the fear that I have, that it won't, it won't be aliens; it will be a constructed alien oh, man, yeah. um, invasion, getting down that route. And it, it seems crazy, but I just, I'm just dubious of where this information is being leaked from, whether it's the Pentagon or the U.S. Navy releasing the Tic Tac video. Um, to me, the, anything the government says, I have to really scratch my head and wonder why now? You've had 50 years to release this stuff. Why now? And um, what's the motivation for it? Have you seen the thing recently? Um, like Nick Pope's been debunked in entirely. His entire role of the government, the MOD, has come out publicly. Nick Pope. Yeah. Um, Philip. Yeah. Mantle, do you know Philip Mantle? Um, UK's kind of like premier author of phenomena. I recognise the name. So uh, him and Nick Pope have worked together a few times down the years, and he's Philip's very uh, open to discussion. I've seen it on his Facebook threads and stuff. So he'd sent off some documents, freedom of information requests to the government, and another guy, I think David Clark, and they've got information back from the MOD via um, freedom of information request that Nick, Nick Pope did work there, but was not the head of any UFO group. He actually was a desk clerk in the Ministry of Defence's... Um, Oh, is it? Um, it's where people report um, foreign objects. Um, so generally, he might have UFO cases come across his desk, but that wasn't his role. He wasn't an investigator into that. He literally was. Right. Just, he was just collating the reports that come by him. Uh, I'd only worked there for three years, um, so he, he. But I think he was one of the people who found himself in the media spotlight, being labelled an expert as because he was at the MOD, and then just kind yeah. of ran with that as his public persona. Um, because that's how the media framed him to to create a whole new. He could have been swept along by the whole thing, you know. Yeah. And then once you're swept along, you've got to go with it. Yeah, but he's got he's got uh, a, currently a whole series in the US at the moment, so that's yeah. now in jeopardy and so on. <laughs> but then it does make you wonder, you know, are they trying to do what they did to? Who was the guy that cracked open the um, Area 51? Lazar. Lazar it yeah. could be like a Lazar situation where. I've no doubt Lazar worked on this stuff in exactly the same way he says he did. But when people look into his background, oh, you didn't go to this university, you didn't get this degree, you didn't... Ollie's scrubbing that to discredit the person. Maybe the same with Nick Pope. Maybe they're saying, no, he didn't work here, blah, 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 yeah, in an effort to discredit him. He does make you wonder. That's, it's quite true, actually, yeah. That's quite true. That could well happen. Because I... a lot of people give gravitas to... Um, you know where someone studied, what the, what qualifications they got, and if you can scrub that or make it seem like they're being that they're lying, you've immediately debunked what everything they're saying. Yeah, that's, that's true. Actually, you can do you, you just erase a person's background or you yeah something they've done in their past or whatever. You go on well, this this guy clearly he cannot hold a position where he's talking to people if he did this in his past. You've discredited his whole character. Yeah. And, and, and that's almost like with the agenda where you, they'll have people that are working within whatever body, body in government that are releasing UFO bits and bobs, knowing it will be discredited down the line, but it's done to 
to basically obfuscate the, the real thing. Well, this UFO stuff, that got disproved, that got disproved. And it almost muddies the water. It's, it's almost like that counterintelligence. Yeah. And I think we've seen a lot of it with the UFO um, subject since, since the Roswell situation and further on, um, where you've constantly got stuff being released knowing it will be debunked to to basically make people look like they're full of shit. Yeah. If I was in counterintelligence, that would be what I would do. Yeah, exactly. Or you'd be releasing, you know, videos from FA-18 cockpits saying this is a tic-tac, this is the alien. It, this is why I, I wonder about all this stuff, why it's been released now and what's the agenda behind it. Um, because I'm distrusting of these people. that Their entire livelihood is about lying and controlling information um so i have to distrust everything they say i think you have to and i think they found someone like tom delon who was popular with the the young people at the time wanted to believe this stuff he's an easy mouthpiece and vehicle to get this information out he might be completely unaware that he's being played but i think he's being played well i think like nick pope perhaps also he fitted the uh, Fox Mulder character of the time. He's yeah. in the mid-90s, yeah. you know, that's X-Files was running on TV at the time. He, it's like, oh, we've got the actual equivalent of him now. <laughs> you know, so and he's coming out and talking about it. So maybe he kind of fitted the narrative himself. And if you think the wider, if you think about the wider subject, in the 50s, or, or before that, when you had Orson Welles' War of the Worlds on the radio, people thought this was real. People were horrified about aliens and the subject and the idea. Now, if you ask people about aliens, most of them, if they don't believe it, they're not completely freaked out about it. So, in a way, we've had a very soft disclosure over the last 30, 40 years. That now, I think that there wouldn't be the panic that there probably would have been back in the 50s or the 40s in regards to aliens. So while people like um, are out there after disclosure, I think we've already had it. I think it's been drip fed into into the society as a whole through movies, through media, for the last 30, 40 years. So now people wouldn't be fearful if aliens appeared. Or, you know, the subject has almost become, you can talk about it. Whereas back in the 40s and 50s, you, it just wasn't done. It's odd that you say that it's now able to be talked about. So I don't know if you've followed my blog and my website or anything I've been posting recently. So I'm investigating the, the Thunderbolt incident, um, right. um, which is a an alleged UFO incident that happened in Kirkby and Ashfield back in 1987. I um, remember you mentioned this years back. So now I have like a full-on investigation done. You know, I've done wow. everything from like... Um, first-hand interviews to accumulating data. I've been on site a number of times. I've got a significant amount of footage um, of um, sworn affidavits. I've got statements of uh, events that happened, the police chief and his act activity at the time, uh, the military involvement that came down there, recovery. Um, witnesses claim that they moved a vehicle on the back of a HGV. Um, and this is like only within like the public consciousness, and it's a place like three miles from here. Um, so I've got a whole mm. series about it on my, on my website now. It's kind of an investigative blog, really. And the... I'll have to check that out. So I um, mean, I did I, the last thing I saw that you did was some of the um, the rabbit hole stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and they were amazing. But I've not I've not looked at this stuff, so I'll go and check that out. But I do remember you mentioning this um, investigation years back. 
about see, the UFO crashing. Yes, yeah, so, I see. I thought Mansfield, but could be Mansfield that it, kind of area. It was always labelled as Mansfield. This, so this is actually through what I've done. I've been able to actually pinpoint where it actually happened. The first location, oh, okay. the second location, um, oh, okay. because all that, that 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 magnification, that resolution of information has changed. Um, right, and that. So I got. There's this particular person I know. She, um, her name's Billy. Uh, Billy lived in Ashfield, uh, Kirkby and Ashfield, uh-huh. and so she came to me maybe four months ago, end of September, and she says, "You need to investigate this this case that happened in Kirkby. Have you heard about it?" And I'm like, "Yes, I made a video about it in 2015. Oh, that's the video I saw, which is the reason I'm talking to you. Okay, oh, okay, uh, okay. So this video in 2015, um." has two earlier bullet points that are worth mentioning here. So the first one, 2007, I go to the Hucknall Library. And in the Hucknall Library, I go to their local studies library. Within the local studies library, there is, um, like the city library has, someone clearly has an interest in ufology and paranormal and explain stuff, and had accumulated a, f- a folder of news clippings of strange stories. Kind of done our job for us. So... And in this folder, I found a bunch of stuff, some books in there, some pamphlets, some leaflets, some uh, news clippings and so on that were in this folder just labelled Paranormal at the Hucknall Library. Within there, there was a piece of paper um, of a news clipping stuck to it. And on that, it gave an account of, um, it's from the Hucknall Dispatch, published in 1997, 12th of November. And um, it's someone, two particular people actually, called Dominic Belgin and Andrian Emerson, they gave a presentation in Basford in 1997 about the case in 1987. And this was done by Boo Orfra and uh, the uh, East Midlands UFO Research Association. So this is, think of it in spatial time. So this is 2007, I find this document. This is yeah. a news story from 10 years before that, of a case that happened 10 years before that. Didn't think anything else of it. I just saw the story, it kind of stuck in my head. 2011, I'm attending a meditation circle. And at this circle, I meet a guy called Alan Smith. He's running the class. He's a mediumistic kind of character that he tells me privately. And um, so we, we end up doing some stuff and we talk quite a bit about the supernatural and so on. Um, and then he says to me, well, have you heard about the, the, the UFO case that happened up here? And I'm like, I know of it, but I don't know any details. He says, well, I saw it. Okay. Wow. So, so what did you see? And he goes, well, I didn't see anything particular. So what I saw was is that at the time, on the 13th of November, no, sorry, the 16th of November, I was a National Express coach bus driver, and I would run the route from Mansfield to Nottingham, um, and then often go up to Sheffield and so on. It, for that, that was my day job. I, I used to do the 6 o'clock run every morning, and I'd do 6 o'clock, 9 o'clock, 12 o'clock, back and forth from Nottingham up to Sheffield, and we'd go up through Mansfield. And he says, but we got stuck, we, and there, were, there was military trucks everywhere. Um, and I was stuck behind a heavy goods vehicle in front of me, and there was two vehicles at the back of that, or they're like military-style jeeps that you see in the movies. These are kind of heavy carrier, troop carriers, effectively. And there was two of them. There was a heavy, long truck with something on the back that was covered in black tarpaulin. And I was like, oh, wow. that's fucking interesting. <laughs> um, and he says that when, we're going, when he was, used to go through there, for about four days... In 1987, there was military everywhere. Police blockades, they were rerouting people. And the story was locally that a UFO had come down. Wow. So that was, that was the kind of the first kind of click. So 2000, so I made a blog post about that after he told me that. So I was like, oh, I've saw that story. And now I know someone who saw something about it. So I made a blog post. And then the, um, 
the person who hosted that meeting in Basewood in 1997 replied <laughs> to that wow. th- to that thread. And he says, "No, you got a few facts wrong there. Um, they were not from Bewarfra. They were more local investigators. Um, I've been in the case. I've been to the site, and so on." And he, he readjusted a bit of the data for me. Okay, that's great. Okay. 2015 comes along. I had a few more comments on that from people who lived local, investigators who'd mentioned other things, uh, and where the crash was. I was like, oh, okay. So 2015, I made a YouTube video called Did a UFO Crash in Nottingham in 1987? Which has got about a thousand, thousand views on it right now. Um, and there's about 50 comments. And people are like, yes, I saw this. This There was like lightning in the sky. There was a, there was a crash. The crash happened here. And then, so, so Billy comes to me. So a few months ago, and she says, I saw that video. And uh, I've got a story to tell you. And I'm like, okay. She says, the story is this. And um, I got woken up. It was 1.30 in the morning. And there was this massive crash. I thought that a jumbo jet had crashed over our house. Wow. She says, it came in. The whole house rumbled. The whole vibrated. Where we lived on this street, which is... um, I could bring up our street address, actually, on my phone. Um, she says, what I expected to see outside the window was like something out of Lockerbie. Because she says that it yeah. rumbled that bad. There was, She says, that was the mental image I had was like a plane crash outside um and we lived opposite um the fire chief uh his name was mr walton he's a, he had a, a a plaque outside his head what called waltonia he was very proud of his house um <laughs> so it's actually that that kind of name sticks in your head right so yeah. Um, yeah. she says that she went to the window because his house alarm was going off um which is basically is that you know if you're on call kind of thing you, you get in your car and go and she says that yeah. she went to the window and she saw him come out of his house jump in the car, bolt down, and go to the Sutton Fire Station. Well, I managed to get a quote from him. Um, wow. So a quote is, is that he he personally attended the fire that happened in Thieves Wood, which is near Copey and Ashfield. Yeah. And, and what he says in there, um, the fire here was very unusual because it is, a, is about a 60-foot circular area that has been entirely flattened. All the trees wow. in there were burned, bent over. Um, the the soil had been turned to like a, a grain to a grainy gravel because it had been superheated, um, and the trees were burnt on the outside. So on the outer ring, the trees were burnt on the outside rather than the inside, and the trees were were bent over. Wow. Yeah, that is still the case now. <laughs> I, I, Fuck. I, so I took the drone up there recently. <laughs> Hey. <laughs> you know what I mean. So, um, I fuck it. I will show some pictures about it here. So, um, yeah. So that was a bit like fuck. I've got to do this properly. So then I got introduced to a group on Facebook. There's a private group. It's called Knots Roswell. Fucking name I can't stand because that's just like Roswell Rods. Or of course Roswell's here. Fuck off. Anyway, so I got yeah. invited to this group, and in within this group, it appears that at least two people of the 38 people that are in there live local, and have investigated this case. Good. There's a guy called Ben Emlyn Jones. He's a... What's his What's his little group called? Uh, Hospital Porters Against the New World Order. It's his little group. <laughs> Fantastic name. Love it. So he, he, uh, so he writes he writes a blog basically about ufology and the supernatural, but generally it's ufology orientated. So he went to this site with one of the local investigators who investigated back in the day. So 20 years ago, so 30 years ago, sorry. He went on this site in 2013, and he sent me a map of where to go. So this is what you, this is where it was, this is where you need to go. So 
on the anniversary, accidentally, 12th of October, I went up there, had the drone, had my phone equipment, video recording equipment, took the drone up, looking around, and it looks absolutely stunning up there. Um, and then it wasn't at the location where this guy told me. But it wasn't until I had the drone up in the air, I was like, no, that's it. <laughs> so it's about, oh, you it's, it's about, it. it's about right. 300 meters away. And there's, there's an area where the tree's in a circle that is about 60 to 90 foot across in a kind of weird elongated shape. Um, the trees are about 20 foot lower. Um, the, wow. the soil there is clay and sand. It's entirely, um, it's a monocrop there. It's entirely silver birch planted in lines, which is unlike anything in the natural environment there. So this was replanted there over this event, which is what the two guys, um, Dominic Belgin and Andrew Emerson, told a particular report that I have uh, back in the day of where this location is. So I'm, I'm the only person to have gone up and filmed that. No one's seen how this looks. Um, and I've put that into that group and they've seen that stuff. Um, and there, everyone there is a bit like, fucking hell, this is more real than we expected. So then and I, does that match the descriptions of yeah, the yes of the crash, the size yes. and stuff? Yes. Interesting. Um, but it's not the only crash. There was two. What? Oh, wow. Two on the same night. <laughs> what? That's crazy. So, again, this is, this, this is the first time I've actually talked about this publicly. This has been entirely private, apart from my blog, right? So... Um, the crash. So there's a particular lady who's got an interesting view on this. So I, I while trying to investigate this information, I've been there. I've now seen this stuff, and I'm going. So the newspapers back in the day, 1987, reported on this. The Evening Posted, the Dispatch, and the Chad all reported on this. However, I emailed them more than once, three times each to them, their editor, their news desk, and their features writer. They've never wrote back to me. Not a single email. Um, <laughs> right, I, right. But, you know, maybe it's just not necessarily for their archive, but like, do you want to, could you run a story on this? It's some like a local history. You covered it before. It'd be really good if we could uh, get some like, first hand accounts and first hand reports in, and we could run a story. It could be good fun. It'll generate a bit of information, local history. Not a single reply to that um, communication. That, that was the second one. The first one was, do you have anything about this? It's from your archives. So then I went back to the Mansfield and the Hucknall um, local studies library where they've got the other microfish tapes. You know, yeah. it's like a, a film what like the photographs of newspapers. Um, they're not accessible because of COVID. Um, not allowed to use the machines until post-COVID. These, um, so unfortunately I can't get first-hand reports of what these were. I've been given some leads on particular newspapers that ran stories on it. I've, uh, do you know Christian Romer from ASAP? Okay, so he's he's like the, the one of the chairs of ASAP right now. He's a he's a former journalist and he's a heavy hitter in the world of the ASAP and the supernatural and paranormal and stuff. So he's he gave me access to his uh, the British Newspapers Association where you can get order back prints as PDFs. So wow. I've been able to look at those newspapers. They don't match up to the stories that I'm told, but all right, which is interesting. Um, one particular newspaper famously says there was a thunderbolt out of the blue. Um, that reportedly is the, uh, the Ashfield Chad. Um, I can't find that back issue that had that on the front cover, although everyone in the area swears that was the front cover, which is really interesting. <laughs> it is interesting. It's almost like a Mandela effect, <laughs> where people have got this remembrance of something that, when you look back on it, Wasn't doesn't there. seem to be the yeah, case. Yeah, one particular lady said there was 
There was a, there was a local newspaper at the time called the Free Press in that area that ran it on the front cover. Uh, again, I, f- I found the front cover of the um, successive issues, and that wasn't there again. Um, again, that's quite interesting story in itself. So, yeah. in the stories, in in the accounts, and there's there's three, I would say, official the three sources that exist on the internet about this entire case. Um, um, but I won't go into them for now because of the sake of what we're talking about. Um, yeah. So. Locally, so I basically I messaged all the Facebook groups of the area. So, Hucknell, Ashfield, Mansfield, Selston, Bledith, Ravensworth, Ravenshead. So they've all got local community groups or whatever. And I must have maybe about two hundred replies from people wow. who saw something, who heard something. No, so everyone heard something. Only about three people saw something. Right. <laughs> Big difference. And I think it's because, and what they all heard was the same thing. That is, they yeah. heard a massive explosion that they thought something had crashed. Uh, there was a massive... And then the houses rumbled. They vibrated. Um, massive electricity outage. Um, in fact, there's a there's a particular electrician who states that um, where his house was, um, his lights uh, that were off turned on, went really bright, dimmed, and then lit back up again and popped. Wow. And that happened. That was TV and videos... That were connected to the powers all blew out in the area. Um, the aerials had all popped. So on the roofs, actually, there was aerials that have pictures of that melted, bent down. A massive electrical disruption. Crazy. Yeah. It's like the same kind of peoples. That that is the of the two sources that exist online. That's I say there's three, but the, of the two sources that exist, they do state that that they think there's some kind of magnetic or sorry yeah. microwave radiation pulse or something or some kind of EM field that happened in the area. That caused all this energy outage in the area. The um, the main focus of the investigation really was on this place called Abbey Road, where a house physically got hit by the object. Um, what? A, a chimney got hit, exploded, and um, so the exaggerated reports are that the chimney exploded due to the UFO hitting it. That wasn't the case at all. I actually managed to get the city council and the repairman who repaired it in the morning to give me a statement, and the fire oh. chief. Who, who repaired, who was there, who attended on the day. Um, I've actually managed to befriend them on Facebook and they've been able to tell me the real story. But the exaggerated internet story and what's in these accounts is that a UFO clipped it and, and then the boiler exploded in the house. Um, indeed, it did indeed blow the chimney and the, and the boiler, the back of the house, all the bricks were removed. It blew out completely. Um, so whatever it was, was it was a physical object. Yeah, had mass, yeah. Yes. That, that I think is really interesting. So that object there, so it definitely was a there was a, there was a kinetic um, effect. So the fire services attended that location, and the council attended to repair it. The morning, it's a council property, it's top so top floor flat. Uh, I've been there and I've got some pictures, and I know the lady who lives there now. Um, so the the chimney clearly is a repair job, and the bricks on the back of the house are clearly very new, or well, thirty years new. Um, difference for the rest of the house. That object then it went up the street. Now, there's multiple reports of seeing lightning along that street that night. Right. So there's 31 accounts that exist that are acknowledged back in 1987 of insurance claims that they didn't pay out because UFOs are not considered part of the insurance. <laughs> and they didn't pay out. 31 accounts of that. That's insane. 
the yeah. insurance salesman was a guy. So the insurance uh, lawyer was a guy called Mike, Mike Smith. So Mike West, sorry. So uh, there's some statements from him. He also was a military guy. Oh. And he was the guy who then went had to go and try and defend these claims to get the insurance to pay out. But they didn't pay out because there was no clause about UFOs hitting the houses. So I just guess to show insurance companies will use anything, even the I, paranormal, I to that, get out of pay. <laughs> so it sort of verifies that there was a UFO case there. And I think that's yeah. actually what's lingered on. So and there are multiple accounts of seeing lightning in the sky. There's also explosions of explosions in the sky. Although the explosion actually was that back boiler. So yeah. what everyone heard is, the, is that back boiler exploded. Although it's misconstrued to be an explosion in the air because people saw the red flash go up if they were looking at their windows. So, and then the entire street gets coated in fire. So all the hedges, all the bushes, uh, the roofs, um, for, a, for a street that is about 400 foot long, this thing travels along it, whatever it was, and burnt all the hedges. So, there's a number of school kids who they used to walk that street every day. They're, they're the ones to give me accounts of the every house, all the hedges was burned, all the roofs were burned, uh, and they are still today. Some of the some of the roofs down there were facing uh, horizontally to that object coming this way are indeed charred even now. And this, I don't ever remember reading this in the papers. No, <laughs> it, that, oh, that. Do you think that would be something big, like? You know, a whole street being marked physically by something. Yes. So there was trees that were removed because they were so damaged and so burnt. Um, and there was a particular lady, her name was uh, Rachel. She literally took me in her car and said, this is where a tree was, this is where a tree was, this is where this was, that's where that was, this is where hedges were or burned. She knew this street like she knew the street. She... And where did it make landfall? Okay. In the forest? Yes. So the, it, it was struggling to stay up in the air. So this object... Then um, was seen doing a loop to loop. It was seen zigzagging in the sky. A Ashfield councillor comments on it in the paper um, that he says that he thought it was like the Blitz. Um, this object is then seen struggling to stay up over this Abbey Road, veers left, banks in, crashes into Thieves Wood, then takes off again, struggles further. So, in fact, in the two accounts that exist on the internet, it says it bounced. So it came in yeah. and took off again. So um, it then bounced and ended up in an area called the Warren, um, right. which is, in fact, where we were once upon a time when we went to Annesley Hall. Okay. So you know, yeah. you know the where we went to Annesley Hall and went to the the gatehouse, the very yeah. area that the gatehouse faces. So because it's, it's it's kind of like the house, the the, um, the Annesley Hall was one direction, and then that gatehouse was like kind of long, wasn't it? So the area yeah. that faces that that is the Warren. Okay. So that, that that extends up about maybe six miles. Goes up to goes up into Annesley and it spreads all the way across the New Abbey. That whole area there where there's utterly nothing. Completely bare. It's literally it, it's fields and lakes. It's a beautiful place. Um, there's some stables there now and there's a small um, industrial estate been built there since but however that is the area where this object then came down to its right. final resting place. So <laughs> that's that's the mystery. What is that? What happened? Um, locally, I can thought... I ask you something? Sorry to interrupt. Um, was there any reports of um, military aircraft? Yes. Um, right. So okay. Because to... my rationale was, if something was coming down, yep, there would be at least forty-five minutes later. Forty-five minutes yeah. later, five Lynx helicopters and a Chinook uh, enter the area. 
Um, and they are, the, the Lynxes all have high power searchlights, they're trying to find this object, and the Chinook lands, I've now got the location of where it landed, I landed in the corner of Derby Road and Diamond Avenue. Diamond Avenue. And that's a troop carrier, so that it will is. be dropping people off. Oh, certainly maybe equipment, on people. Yeah. So, I was trying to work out what airbase that would come from within 45 minutes. Um, a lady who actually got in contact with me a couple of weeks ago, she, her husband worked as a Chinook helicopter pilot, so he knows all their bases and where they were located. So he's going There to might be us. one up in Lincoln. Lincoln Spalding is up in Lincoln. Yeah, Lincoln was a reference point. There was another one in Selston. Not um, Selston. The one with the sea. Anyway, that, that was a, that's a location where Chinook was definitely based. Right. So they appeared to have landed on site um, and then done some investigation of the crash that was there. The um, And then it gets weird. Okay. Well, it's not weird enough. <laughs> not weird enough, no. So, particular house, okay? I can't give the location because I particularly told when I had this when I had this sitting in an interview with this person. I right. wanted to give it away at the time, not until the documentary comes through. I need to get some legal permission first. So, yeah. this house was physically also hit by the object. This house, um, I was, it was described to me as being a physical house that had an extension built onto it. The extension, therefore, is a bit less structured. Um, the object hit the extension and it basically it's like the kid's bedroom so whatever the wing of this object is actually cut into the bedroom wall as it Whoa. Went. yeah <laughs> so it was described to me it was described to me as being where the kid's bedroom cupboard is along the wall there um, all the, the the bricks pushed into the house along a, like a two or three meter run and uh, that had burned and blistered all the plaster and all the paint. And the, and that had wow. Burned. And then, so this particular guy who owned this house, or ran a business from this house, that's not quite clear to me, um, he thought that it was hailing. And he went out into his garden, because he was a mechanic, he was working cars in the front of his house. So he came out of his house, went out to the front, and then he believed that there was hail coming down, so he wanted to cover the client's cars in tarpaulin so they didn't get damaged and didn't. Sure. That's when some went, serious hail. So, when, but, when, so, but when he went out there, he said it was metal filings that were coming down from the sky. Mm. Metal dust, the metal uh, metallic dust that was coming down, uh, filings that were yeah. down, scattered over there. Um, Did he keep some? No, but the uh, Department uh, Ministry of Defence came to collect some. Oh, I bet they did. <laughs> <laughs> they did indeed. The Department of Scientific Investigations came to collect some. So... Um, they also cleared some it took five weeks for it to be cleared because there was that much wow uh, but it was that fine it was into everything it was into the floor into the soil on the roofs on the on the conservatory there um, apparently it took five weeks to, to clear and wash away with the rain and stuff oh we should have kept some I know it. gosh so <laughs> this guy told this report says to me um, I had a sick down interview with this lady they, police came to the house the day after. Police came back to the house the day after that. Two military personnel, in not military garb, but they were clearly desk officers, as it were. Yeah. They were formal dressed, but rather than combat gear dressed. They took samples and they wanted to. They gave this guy questioning. A day later, a Russian turned up at his house. What? Yeah, a Russian with a translator came to ask questions at his house. That's crazy. Yeah. I, I, I've got a theory about this, but I, I've put it out in the blog, but I don't know for sure. Um, so this guy, 
who's quite a, he's described as being a uh, spade as a spade kind of uh, legit kind of hard working hard grafting guy that the the um, the investigations of his house were too much. Then when a Russian turned up to be his house in the middle of the Cold War, nineteen eighty seven, it, it was too much for him. And then literally he never spoke to anyone after that. That seems strange. How would that story have gotten to Russia? When, and how has that story stayed entirely quiet until about three weeks ago when that lady spoke to me? <laughs> well, yeah, I suppose there is that. And the veracity of this guy's... I mean, I mean, I guess a lot of it relates on that, really. Yeah. So, um, and the, the Chinook helicopter actually landed in the field adjacent to that house. Um, right. Uh, so it's just a bit like, what the fuck happened in this area? I know. So I've managed to verify everything that's happened so far, apart from two things. The Asheville County Council won't reply to me. I have tried. Um, I I really need to send a request off to the, the fire service about, because the fire station moved and some records have been lost or whatever. Um, Can't I, you do I, a freedom of information request to the it, council? It has to be extremely specific. Right. Um... You can't just give them a date and a time and an event or whatever. You, list, you have to go to the correct department of the government and wear it. And if you look at these government departments, you're like, what? They do listen. Which, yeah. Um, and it, basically, they could say there's nothing there. But it could just be a different one because they don't have the time to look. Right. Apparently, they'll, they'll, you are given f- half an hour's free work as your government of freedom of request. So if it requires that they have to go to look at a different file and it goes over that half an hour, no, you're coming back with nothing. Unless you physically go there and look at the National Archives. Which they're not going to let you do. No, you can do that. Oh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> you can go, you go to the National Archives as long as you book a time to go in there and do that. Although with COVID, that might not be the case. Yeah, um, I would imagine so. No. So that that's currently where I am investigation-wise. The um... That's crazy. I mean, I'm fairly local to that. I used to be a MUFON member in Basford where they used to meet, which is probably where that was... Yeah. originally shown. Yeah, so you probably know Anthony, Anthony then, do you? Yeah. yeah, me and Gino used to go there. But um, I don't remember the story. I mean, that's pretty big. You would... I know, it's it's amazing no one's heard this story. Yeah, that's physical evidence of something solid hitting a chimney, yep. cutting through someone's house yep. extension. That house was actually demolished because of that, because what happened is that the house had then shifted to the left slightly, so none of the doors in the house closed. <laughs> Crazy, so, and you know, the kids. Is kid in there? Could have got injured. So like, they had three kids. That that story must have been really covered up. That that is the case. So where's that fucking book I got nearby? So there's only two reports of this entire case that's out in the public domain, um, and I say two. So one is a case that was uh, posted by a guy called Ashley Rye, and he was posted to an. Uh, you know, before the internet existed, there was news service. You know, it was almost like uh, news letters that were posted to people's email addresses on a network. Um, yeah. Kind of pre-internet, pre-HTTP. Uh, that's how that's how people disseminated information. So there's one report that came that way, and it's clear by someone who either lives local or has accumulated information, and it contains Mike West. It contains it's allowed me to find a few people. There's that one, and there's another report by a guy called um, John King. John King is the editor, formerly, of the UFO Reality magazine. He was an investigative journalist for the London Herald at one time, uh, but had a side interest in ufology. Um, So that was kind of a side gig for him. So he wrote a report um, 
that's called File 31. It's in his book called Cosmic Top Secret that I do have around here. Cost me fucking far too much money. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to know how much that cost me. Uh, okay. <laughs> no, it has, has three numbers in it. Uh, wow. Um, yeah. Um, so, because I wanted to see this file for myself. So, in that, sure. in that, in that book, there's two accounts. One, that there's he is investigating for where he lives. Obviously, he lives in Somerset. So he's writing with correspondence to people who live local in one report. Yeah. The second yeah. report is the fact that he's clearly been in contact with this Dominic and this Andrew, and they've filled in information also that what they've investigated. So technically there's two reports in this book, but there's sort of one about this case. And he says this is probably the most important case outside of Rendlesham, which doesn't really mean anything now, and Roswell. Yet nobody knows about it. Why? Well, yeah, why indeed? Because that is a lot going on. Yeah. It's not just someone seeing a light in the sky and we don't know what it is. That's big. Yes. Uh, I know the UFO report itself is sketchy of uh, the object. Um, I've I've got a report that a lady only came to me a couple of days ago, and uh, she is a former Vulcan pilot. Wow. <laughs> or a, certainly she has a passion for Vulcans. I get the impression that she was clearly she knew what she was talking about when I was speaking to her. So she right. lived in Kirkby and saw this object in the sky. Wow. So she, she she was on a street and she literally said she was she was eight months pregnant at the time. She was playing the game of life with, or Monopoly with a bunch of friends around a table as they did that time of year. And she was sat on the sofa and as she leaned forward to move pieces on the table, she he was then eye level with a window. Could look out yeah. and she says that what she saw was like, it looked like a green tree in the sky, like green lightning. It's kind of a, it came forward and it extended outwards. Um, and she's just, she has no idea what it was. There was a, there was the, it was, there was the explosion that she heard, but it wasn't until after she'd seen this. So she saw this before the explosion. So luckily, I'm able to then go, oh, well, that's where this was. This is this time. Kind of a bit of a flight plan. Flight plan. This, she, this came over the back of the house, out past, directly ahead. And... Uh, she says, I can't describe other than that it looked like a huge giant tree in the sky. As the lightning came outwards. Um, it's like like a tree pattern. Um, but all the rest, wow. all the rest, and she said it was green. It was luminous green. It was like a bright colored green. That's, that's... Like you would expect from electromagnetic Maybe. stuff. Yeah, because that's normally green, isn't it? Like with the, um, what's it, Northern Lights. Again, that's green because of the electromagnetic yeah, field that's, that's that's bouncing off. Good point. Yeah, I didn't think about that. The ionosphere, yeah. Um, yeah. So all the other reports are, I saw lightning going down the street, I saw balls hitting windows, I saw um, it came in the house, um, a few reports say. Um, so along this abbey road, there's windows that are broke inwards, there's windows that are broke outwards. Um, all down the street. This is massive. Yeah. So on the streets that are nearby, so I, d I put a picture up of a sunset the other day, and I posted on this Kirkby group, and I said, oh, I was in the area... Film about this. Film about this. Uh, the Thunderbolt incident again. I've I've been intentionally clear that I'm not using the word ufology or UFO because yeah. everyone remembers yeah. it as the Thunderbolt incident, and and because of that, I've got there's about 144 replies in there, all going. I saw this. I heard this. I felt this. I've contacted all those people um, for more or more reports on that. About what they've seen. Everyone's everyone heard it, but only very few see it. But there's one report that is completely different. And it probably, really, and probably it's the only one I trust. Right, and what what I mean by trust is that it's the only one that actually is more legit. Um, it's the one I haven't included on any of the document stuff. So, 
this, this for many people perhaps is their introduction to this um, Thunderbolt incident. So this particular person lived at the end of Abbey Road. Her, I don't think how do you how do you describe it on audio? So obviously the houses face inwards on the road. However, her house is at the very end of the road and actually is faced the other way around. So her her house along with six others, faces outwards on the f- to the fields that are beyond the end of the road. At the end of the road right. is basically fields going up as far as these would. So this particular person, she heard the explosion, but sat up in bed, turned her head, her curtains were already open, and then she saw the object flying from behind her house over her house, and then going out over the field, and then veering left. Um, she said that she never told anyone, because she was nine years old at the time, and she thought it was stupid. But what she describes is something very different to everyone else. What she describes is a ring of fire. She says it's like a ring. It was in an orange-blue trim, and it was moving away at speed. It was gone in two seconds. Never been able to describe it, she says. Never thought to, te- never thought to share anything with anyone. Um, it was just one of those things. I just, I just heard the explosion. I sat up in bed. I looked out the window and saw this move away. It was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a ring. It was orange. It had a shimmering blue... And it shot away. It didn't last any longer. I thought, what the fuck is that? She says, yeah, but then I saw Top Gun when I was about 14. And she says, when I saw the afterburners on planes, that is what I saw. I saw an afterburner. Interesting. She says, that's what she says. It wasn't until she saw that movie that she ever thought, heard, or seen anything. It wasn't until she saw that movie that she saw the fact that that's what it was that was moving away from the house. And then everything ticks into place. Yeah. It's um, the reason... and I, I need to verify this. this. This is my conclusion of this event. It's not a, UFO, not a UFO. I can't quite describe the lightning. But the physical damage caused by... the in the area could indeed be caused by an earthly plane. An, an aircraft. So yeah. the area is actually... It's the highest area in the county... So there's actually a building nearby that actually says it's the highest place in the county. There's showed, observ- right. showed observatories up there. It's like 189 feet above sea level. Uh, it's really quite high up there. And this at the time was the only housing estate. So it might be that all the rest of the area was all darkness. If you're a pilot yeah. who's in the area, you're doing cause you, you're doing low-level flying or whatever, There's certainly the area up there is perfect for air testing. It's what you're going to use. So my thought was, maybe the pilot didn't realise how low he was. It pulls back right. on the pulls back on the throttle, so the plane kind of comes up a bit higher. It's what it's what actually superheats the boiler, the thrust, the behind it. So if you're a plane going forward trying to avoid the houses, it's like shit, and you've pulled up and you're above the houses, you didn't realise how low you were residentially, and then that thrust behind the vehicle is equal to what the thrust is taking the vehicle forward. So it's extremely hot. We're talking like more than 3,000 degrees. So yeah. if, it, if it goes over a chimney, it is indeed going to... I brought up, I got chimney schematics, seriously. Um, wow. They're, they're, all, they're all metal cased in the 1980s. They were, they, they were just changing from coal into gas. That particular street was actually being changed from coal into gas at that time. Right. That very week, oddly enough. Um, but this particular house was still coal-fired. Um, but it was, it was metal-lined, and the back boiler was in there. So my thought was, it's a clearly... It's overheated the back boiler, which is what the um, the council repairman said it was. Although, when he said he got in there, he said that he saw there was bricks from the chimney breast embedded in the plaster wall in the room. 
because it shot out with that much velocity. The guy right. was in, his name was Dom, he was in the kitchen making tea, although reports on the central news was he was in bed, but yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but that would also account for the, the road being, all the hedges being burned. The, sure. Um, the, the the rooftops being burned and only one side, which they are. <laughs> the um, the aerials being melted and damaged at the top. That's super heat. So therefore, it perhaps wasn't magnetic. It perhaps was the fact that the aerial on the top of the roof that was connected to that wire that used to run down the wall would go into your TV and into your video player was just yeah. superheated because they all yeah. blew. The, the electricity would also have that effect. And then that would also explain how this person, Rachel, saw this afterburner go off. And if you're a plane and you're aiming for dark area because you don't want to hit any residential houses, you know your vehicle's struggling to stay in the air, that is definitely a consistent report. You perhaps would aim where it's darkest, and then you realise, oh shit, it's fucking trees, not a field. They've pulled back again, so the thrust behind the aircraft is what causes them trees to burn in that area. Um, right. And then it's that's why it's bounced. It's gone back up again, but then it's come back down in the warren. Makes perfect sense. I mean, it could have been a tornado or something doing low-level flying i think i think it isn't like that i think it is because that yeah. is that is a single engine burner <laughs> yeah that's what i was thinking at the time could it be a phantom no that's double engine probably you know and the, the date range would have been right for tornado, tornado flying so now um, so i have a conclusion in my estimation it's one of the things that it seems to add up it doesn't explain all the lightning in the air but actually the attributes of it appear to do that so it's a case of now, yeah. I've got to prove that bit now. So it's gone from a ski UFO case that actually is really magnificent for all the right reasons, but actually it might have a more down-to-earth reason. But because I think of you're that, right, and, and that would explain why it was all hushed up as well. And that's it, and that's why, because I was thinking, I, I wrote this to, um, to said this to Sylvia the other, day, the other day, I was like, if you've got, if it's 1987, you've got foreign intrusion into your airspace, you wouldn't send helicopters, you'd send interceptors. Of course you would, yeah. The helicopters wouldn't be there to find out what happened to the UFO or whatever. You'd be sending interceptors to shoot something down or to scatter out the airspace. And I, yeah. I managed, to, <laughs> I managed to get the UFO, sorry, the Ministry of Defence's document for dealing with interception of a UK airspace in 1987. <laughs> document. Wow. <laughs> uh, as a PDF, and it's it's, it's about there um, how they dominate the airspace and what they have to do when an intrusion happens. So again, yeah. its policy is if there's something in the airspace, you intercept. Um, um, and the first first call is like three radio contacts, um, a warning and so on, dominating the airspace. Um, and then it's, it's a warning shot action. Um, and then, but these are helicopter responses. So, but if it had, it had a, a known aircraft come down, that would be the response you would send to repair it or to pick yeah. it up. You, you, you'd, yeah. so you'd secure the pilot and you, obviously you'd secure the aircraft. And then, then you'd secure the aircraft. That would make Get rid of the wreckage. Yeah. It makes more sense that way. But everyone in the area still says it's a UFO. <laughs> yeah. It, it is crazy. But then, you know, maybe they that's because... Not that they want it to be a UFO, but if something unexplained happens in the sky late at night, that's your first assumption, not a tornado coming down on the end of your street. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's crazy. You may have debunked <laughs> the local myth. But, you know, if it wasn't for Rachel's story, and seeing yeah. that, and nothing, it would still sit there as a, you know, a UFO mystery. What makes you go give credence to Rachel's story rather than the others that say 
it looked like a Christmas tree. It was so the difference is is that uh, the way that she comes across is right very, okay. very much like. Well, in fact, you could see her videos. <laughs> it's very much like I don't know what I saw, but I know this happened, and she's very very much kind of like teacher esque persona, very bold, very brazen with what she's saying, very clear, very. But also, she sounds like she grew up in that kind of area. Um, right. She was the one who described where the trees were, got got burnt, and she didn't know about the um, the metal filings that come down everywhere. Um, and I was like, "What? Well, so what are they going to be? What are they going to be? They got fucking chaff, haven't you?" Yeah. <laughs> so that's I was thinking, true, but would it would it chaff dispensed, isn't it? Or so would they dispense the chaff? Maybe it's maybe, you... I don't know how much weight chaff has. Um, or has a lot. Or if, when it hit the building, that's actually the the tank that got blown. Yeah, that's more likely. Because that house is the one got fucking coated in it. So, um, yeah. But there's also that stuff is also found at the um, the site in Thieves Wood as well. So, I thought, is, did it did it did it rupture the tank there? Did it is that what clipped the wall? Is that why the whole building was covered in this metal dust? And terrible. Yeah, still doesn't explain the Russian. No, that's the bit I don't... But then you have to wonder how much credence is to every one of these. I mean, the idea that a Russian would come into Cold War Britain... <laughs> I know, right? ...for a local UFO incident, it seems highly unlikely. Were they Russian or did they just have an accent? I see. And that, that, would, is, yeah. that is my thought. They had an accent. But apparently they had an assistant or a translator with them, was the statement I had. Right. Because that seems like wild history, doesn't it? That seems a little too yeah. x file But there is a chap who lived in Nottingham at that time, who was Armenian, who had a passion for the for UFOs. And I thought, so oh, I, I, literally, okay. I literally want to fucking listen to some Armenian accent. I'm like, that's fucking Russian, if I didn't, if I didn't know about it. Yeah, it's very similar. Yeah. Um, and that would make sense. Someone who's interested in that went up to talk to the people. He didn't speak English, so he took a translator. Well, at least I had a yeah, didn't speak a friend German, yeah. translated yeah. So that that's that's my thoughts and conclusion on that. So I kind of have a full breadth of a story with that. So now that's a hell of a story. It is. So documentary is on the way. <laughs> wow. But now I've just got to film. The thing is, I've got to film so many extra bits, like recreating certain scenes when I'm using animation um, to recreate certain videos. It's like your own docu movie. That's yeah. going to be huge. I could be. Could be. Yeah. I've seen, I've seen the stuff that's on Amazon Prime. Oh, yeah, <laughs> you can get is... it up there. <laughs> Dude, have you seen that shit that's on there? There's some ghost shows on you on fucking Amazon Prime. They look shit. Oh, oh man. Oh, I, I started watching one and I got a minute and a half in and I was like, what the hell is this shit? Oh, man. So... I saw one about this guy. He had um, a dibit box um, and it was made to look like it was real. All the people were actors. And this guy apparently had seen all this stuff going viral on the internet, bought one off the dark web, and this is what happened when he had it in his house. And the acting was terrible. I was like, there's no way you're convincing anyone this is real. No. Um, it was shocking. And I've seen ghost ones just the same. Where like, Or we're ghost hunters and we've gone to this building and guess what? It's real and this is what happened. This is our video that's been released and it's like man and you look at it and you go i could make better myself are you trying to convince that that's the, i guess that that's the point i feel that i'm really difficult to watch these shows at. i'm going 
who the fuck filmed this? And th their presentation, nothing makes sense. There's no structure. It's just a bunch of people running around in the dark with a fucking glow dark camera. Or or they have this belief called portals. Fuck me. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, it fucking hurts. I hear that word. I, I can... I hate using that phrase, it gives me autism, but it makes me go, <laughs> My portal twitches when I hear the word portal. <laughs> uh, yeah, or demons. Everything has to be a demon. It's like ghosts aren't scary enough now, so every bang in the dark has to be demonic. Yeah, um, I think it's like, um, it's like watching a TV show, but you've got to the 10th series and you have to make it more... How do you keep yeah, the hook on? upstage it. Yeah. So you've gone from being like the local, local boss to being shit. You've you know, you're like the big boss, the end of the end of the life crime syndicate guy to the Illuminati or whatever. You know you've got to take it to the very top, and now you've got to keep them there. And every other show that comes along, it's like, well, we'll grade it on that scale then. It's like, yeah, oh, I mean, I've I've been watching some on on there. Or was it YouTube? I can't remember. Um, some paranormal show. And every episode, it was demonic. It was some family tormented by demonic. And I've looked at some of the stuff they said there was evidence, and I'm like, it could just be a normal ghost. That could just be stuff going on in the house. But the assumption of the people that come out is, it's demonic. And it's kind of like, what makes you an expert in this? How can anyone be an expert in I was demonic there. stuff? And and they jump to this conclusion almost to like, it's more scary. It's not just a ghost. This is a demon, and we have to get someone in to do an exorcism. And we exorcisms aren't done easily, but these okay. groups come and are yeah, we're going to do an exorcism. It's like, okay, well, you've got to have a bishop to. I think it's a bishop. You have to have these authority to do it. Yeah. Uh, and there has to be things they have to prove before they'll say, yes, you can have one done. Yeah. But these groups turn up and say, oh yeah, we had an exorcism. No, you had a clearing. You had a house clearing, <laughs> yeah. or some dude came and prayed, but that isn't an exorcism. No. Um, but they were shocking, and every show was like that. And I was like, God, what is just wrong with a normal ghost? Why does it have to be a demon? And why do these shows have to be scary? They have the introduction, and they have the, the and you're like, this is not a horror movie. It's true. <laughs> um, it, it's painful. Um... It is, and it's almost like it it kind of discredits the the subject. The people that are, you know, interested in this and want to research stuff, it's almost you're having to fight this uphill battle against the stereotype that people have that if it's a ghost, if it's a paranormal, it must be scary, it's demonic, it's going to possess your children, it's going to... It's crazy. It actually is crazy. There was... And this phenomena has not helped it with the, you know, the, the ghost shows that came out five, ten years ago that were just... Everyone that had a camera was making a ghost show. Um, and we've seen how that affected, you know, when we were doing investigations, if you weren't showing up with a big crew and offering lots of money like most haunted were, people wouldn't let you in their properties. They wouldn't let you do investigations, and it really harmed that field, I think. Yeah, I, it does, because now, the thing is, everyone's now going around in their local woodland with their phone camera going, is there a ghost here? Oh, there's a knock on the... What the fuck? Well, because they want their little 15 minutes of fame because they, that's what they see on YouTube and on Amazon Prime and on you know, Netflix and stuff, group people doing this. And I guess with the, the Blair Witch thing, you know, that kind of documentary horror success and the paranormal activity one, that you, know, you can make something low budget and if you can convince enough people, you know, yeah. it, it, it's, it does harm the field of research, I find. 
yeah it's um i don't know what will come next though it's gonna be like demon hunters and shit it's gonna be aliens next demons won't be scary enough i've seen ones where it has to be the devil i'm satan yeah. What really? You've got nothing better to do I was at my friend's house and she had that. There's a channel called, I think, is it like Really TV or something like that? It literally shows yeah, yeah. like back to back ghost hunting shows all day, yeah. every day. And there was one particular show on there and I felt, I felt in my heart so embarrassed to consider myself in that same interest field. And what they yeah. did, it was, it was a man and wife couple and they were American. And they'd gone to a house in Grimsby. <laughs> and, okay. okay, so they were in England. And, and um, the two people who owned this house were clearly spiritually orientated people. Right. I think they were, I would assume they were Romani by the way they were dressed. They clearly, okay, had, yeah. they clearly had a relationship with spirituality, shall we say. And they big fucking earrings, long dresses, very much like the typical Romani style look. Yeah. So while they were doing this investigation overnight, which was super serious, indeed it was the devil who lived there. Of course, it, it, it was the, it was not only a ghost, a spirit, it was a demon. It was actually the devil. Satan comes to this house. Satan and, comes to Grimsby. <laughs> and, it, and then, like, and, then the, and when they did the, the we're going to show these people who live here the evidence, and they were like. Uh, and they showed us some fucking clips of some orbs and whatever, and some sounds, and it, this thing said Satan on their um, uh, little voice box thing. And it was a case of, see, lady go, is he happy with that? And I was like, if this was fucking real, you've just told two people who have spiritual senses that the devil, the physical, uh, the the demonic equivalent of God is in their house. And it wants to give them suicidal <laughs> thoughts, it wants to send them down a very dark path and wants to capture their soul for all eternity. And you're going, see you later, guys. What, yeah. what kind of fucking message is that? In any logistic... Even even if you take it that everyone's spiritual, that this, that is real, that is what you've told this family is happening in their house. And you are the experts. You are the, this, the doctors who know everything about this particular field. And this is what you have told this family is going on here. The devil is actually here. And, and you're going to lead them to it. I know, I just thought, how fucking irresponsible. Yeah, you've gone and collected the information you wanted, and then you're going to leave them to live with the consequences. I know, I was just... I, I couldn't describe how I felt. I was just like, how the fuck can you do that? You've just used them. You've used those people. If it was real at all, you've used them, scared them to death, stirred up whatever's there, and then you've just left them to the consequences after you've got what you wanted it seems you've used them yeah and i was just like what is and i mean you and i really ought to do like a, a watch through of some par- we literally ought to grab maybe an episode of yeah, every ghost actually. show we should definitely we should, we do should that get an episode of like of every ghost show and literally just do a watch along yeah <laughs> yeah definitely because i've seen some um some of those on oh, what was it i think it was body piercing i was watching one and it was a guy on YouTube that basically is a piercer. And it was all these videos of people doing it at home. And then he'd stop the video and be like, no, what are you doing? Like, and I thought, yeah, actually, that would be cool if we did a paranormal one. And as soon as they said, this is how we capture ghosts in our little ghost trap. Or, you know, we could actually pause it and go, hang on a minute, come on. What, what, what's this? You um, got, we've got to do this. There's, there's, this would be great. There's, there's this few, would be great. There's a few ghost shows that need that. I and mean, there's, there's this particular. Yeah, guy. there are. 
I don't, I don't know what the fuck his name is. It's, got, it's not Zach Baggins or whatever his name is. There's another guy. And he was on a show called, was it Haunted Towns or something? Or, and he basically is this... There's him and one guy. And they, they appear to be like travelling around America in the back of an RV. And they're going to like various locations. And they both believe in portals. And it's all right. they spoke all they spoke about. There's a portal here, it's coming out now. There's someone who came through the portal and came back in again. It's like what the fuck? And they were going to this ghost expert every month, every every episode, and he would give them a new piece of equipment to test. Right. Oh that he sold on his site and it was just advertising for his stuff. Yeah. And like the second he had a black hole detector. And I was like, more <laughs> A black hole detector. Okay. So science is still trying to grasp what a black hole actually is, but he's got a little detector himself. It's about the size of a shotgun, a black hole. <laughs> Fuck me. I, I'm surprised he didn't have proton colliders and uh, <laughs> an ecto trap. It hurts, man. Well, the ecto trap is crazy. Extreme it's ghost absolutely hunting. crazy. I saw a show called Extreme Ghost Hunter. They had they had the trap literally out the out of Ghostbusters trap. Um, and it was just, it was it was, like, it was like a fish tank, right? It was on the floor, and it had um, it had a rock in that they believed they could contain the ghost in a rock that was wrapped in these electrical wires, and they somehow guided the ghost to be above this water tank, this fish tank, like a standard like two by one foot fish tank, and they somehow I've got to see that. They I've got, got, to they see got the ghost inside the rock, put the rock in the water, then electrified the water to nullify the ghost. <laughs> That level of pseudoscience just makes my portal twitch. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> it's just a gimmick, isn't it? People will believe it because, hey, it sounds like science. Um, that might work. Oh. Um, just yesterday. Shocking. You know when you say that, just like science. So yesterday, I was on Facebook, and um, this person posted on a on a, on a group um, that they got. Oh, what the fuck was it? They got a picture of a black orb. That was it. And they wanted to know what this black orb was. And this 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 expert replied that the only reason the orb is black is because there is an evil entity in the room that is blocking photons from reaching oh, your man. eye. Um, so therefore they can tell that it's evil and it is from the black quantum level. And I'm like, you fucking what? <laughs> And I had Where to, did he make this? And I had, to repli- I had to reply. I had to reply. You're trying to sound scientifical, like Sharon A. Hall's book, or Hill's book rather. Um, you know, it doesn't make it real. Whatever. You should look at the photographic. Um, look at your look at your camera instruction manual to see how orbs are caused. And then this whole rant of messages from this the, the guy who posted that. You don't know what. Oh you're yeah, you about. will. I've it's... done the same. I've done the same. There was one I saw, and I felt I had to comment about orbs. And I actually posted some videos of a guy debunking orbs. It was, I wish I'd have kept the link actually. It was about a 30 minute video that showed a guy creating orbs and how to create them on, on uh, at will and then photograph them so it looks like they're, um, you know, they're ghost orbs. And it was just dust. He was doing it with dust. He was doing it with moisture. He was doing all these kind of things, debunking them. And it's kind of like, I guess it comes back to that um, people wanting to believe, you know, and they, that, uh, what's it called? Uh, something bias. Um, bias. Da, 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 da. Well, 
they're basically they want to believe it and then anything that matches that belief is instantly proof that's what it is confirmation bias that's the word i wanted um so you know any fly i mean we had that picture when we were at i don't know where it was was it limby and we had some photographs we took in a field and we had a classic orb in a photograph and then the next one along was an orb with legs yes and then the one after that was a picture of a i think it was a mosquito that's or a right, fly yeah. or something that's right yeah and, and you know well, there was a classic example. orb. We we could have taken the first picture and said, "Hey, there's a spirit." Well, no. Right. It's almost like people don't want to. There should be people that investigate it properly. Um, and as much as I've seen ghosts when I was young, and I've seen them quite recently, the more I research the subject, the more I find that it's usually something else. It's a misidentification. It's a misunderstanding of natural phenomena. It's. Um, I think it was Price that said that the more he investigated stuff, the less he believed. Um, and and I, and I think there's something to that. But people don't want to investigate stuff properly. They want to confirm their bias. They want to turn up. They want to, even if they genuinely want to help the people, how are you helping them if you go investigate, get EVPs and then disappear and the family's left with no resolution They've still got to live with that. I think I saw one where they were telling a family it was demonic and then they had kids in one of the rooms who was a 13-year-old girl and then they just left. And it's like, well, you just told that girl, the 13-year-old girl, there's a demon in her room and you've left. You've not done any kind of closure, clearance, but you've got your... I, you've got your information and just left them to it. Because what, what is the resolution? What is the Is there a counselling resolution where you can take these people? Well, you'd assume that if, I don't know, I guess it took what kind of view you were. If you were a psychic kind of group that you would go there and, you know, if something was there, you might open a, a light or a portal and, and, and cross that spirit over. How a scientific group would do that, I guess I don't know. They wouldn't. They'd have to get a fish tank and a rock <laughs> and some lights and trap it. But I guess at the end of the day, it's down to what they, what they want. If you want proof, if you want research um, material, great. But what are you going to do to help that family? Yeah. You know, and if that family wants that spook gone, I think you have to go with a non-scientific, if that's even the real word, approach. And you would have to do some kind of clearing when you cross that spirit over. But maybe but, then it wouldn't be trapped. I guess it just depends on where your beliefs lie. Not even that, though. Is is that nothing more than say, um, you know, a pseudo effect? It's like, oh, you you've now seen the closure. Now it stopped. The activity stops because you perhaps just under, misunderstanding things that were there. So is it more? Yeah, like a, a, a it's placebo ritual? almost. Yeah, placebo ritual. Yeah, almost. I mean, I've seen a lot of shows where they they bring someone in, they say some prayers, they do a clearing, and then things get better for a week or so. And I think that better is just placebo. Yeah, and then it carries on, and I guess it's tough. It really is tough. You've got experts in a field that isn't even really a field, so I don't know how you can actually be an expert. Um, how are you an expert on demons? You know, like you, that pre-assumes that demons exist. Yes. Um, you know, and it, it's laughable. It really is. If you're if you're trying to take a scientific approach and you're looking for research material, great. 
but how are you helping the family? If you get a bunch of EUPs and disappear, that's not helping the family. You've got to try and work out what it is the family's suffering with, coping with, and then find some real-world um, thing for them, like whether it's therapy, whether it's psychotherapist, whether it's getting someone in who's an expert in that field and explaining, look, this is what's really happening, rather than telling them it's a demon and then just disappearing. Yeah. I, I think there's, a, there's, a, there's an emotional scar that's being left there. Is is yeah, it's disgusting. Yeah. Um, and and how are the how are the investigating the people? What happens if that's someone who's, who's suffering with some kind of um, schizophrenia or some kind of course, uh, mental issue? And who you then told them there's a demon in their bedroom and then disappear. You validate that for them. They're going to go and do some whatever. Yeah, God knows what happens. I mean, where's the Where's the responsibility of the investigators there? Are they, a, hey, we've got an EVP, we're off. Had a bit, and that person I had an epiphany once, if that's the right word. I was at a house, and I was invited there by um, a couple, an investigator light, shall we say, um, and they're a couple of friends, and they were at this house. And I can remember walking around this house, and um, they were saying they heard some stuff in the kid's bedroom, they heard some stuff in the master bedroom upstairs. I can remember going to this kid's bedroom, and um, I stood there, I closed the door, and I was like, imagine, and I, they said that, that kind of, that, that, that story came to me, I said, imagine if they said that something happened in here to their daughter, and an investigator was accused of that. What, what was the, what's the defence? There isn't one. Yep. And what if there was someone they'd planned, oh, got, I've got some ghosts in my house, could you come and investigate it? And they turned to be a schizophrenic. And they go and kill their people, or it's, yep. inti- or it's intended murderer. And I, in that moment, I closed, closed that door. I just felt all that vulnerability and going, "This is just wrong." Yeah. <laughs> and I, I haven't done it since, apart from when we did it with you guys. But I just yeah. did not. I felt so vulnerable to what could be accused of, what could be stated. And we're talking exactly. about 2013, 14. That happened. And I, yeah. I can just remember standing there going, "If they said they had a kid in here, and the kid said something." Or that someone's touching me, or whatever, or someone's hurting me, and then you—you—who's going to stop you getting arrested? Who's going to? You're really opening yourself up to a lot of, a yeah. lot of stuff. And like I say, the, yeah. the danger that a person puts themselves in because they want to be a ghost hunter. You can go into the yeah. fucking woods and it's, a, it's basically a bunch of guys in there who want to, I don't know, attack white guys. You know, you've seen that stuff in the news. They'll just uh, happily drop people out. My thought of it is, okay, you're a ghost hunter. What are you going to do when you find it? Yeah. Like, if you're hunting deer, and you're a hunter and you go hunting deer, you find a deer, you trap the deer, you shoot the deer, you take it out. What are you going to do with a ghost? Well, you're a ghost hunter, what are you going to do with it? What, what is it you're trying to do? If you're trying to find material to explain the belief that there's life after death, great. But how's that helping the family? Um, if you're a spiritual-minded person, maybe you're a religiously like rabbi or you know someone from an Islamic church, and you're going to help an Islamic family with a situation, that's something else. Where do the, where do you fit in between those two poles, and, and what are you going to do to help the family? Because I guess at the end of the day, they're contacting you because they're at their wit's end. Yeah. Um, and they they want some real world, you know, their their kid or whatever is suffering. They're, they're losing sleep. They're having trouble working the next day. Where's the real world solution? These ghost groups aren't going to give them that, no, especially that... if they're just doing it for TV. 
or, it, it's or, crazy. Or YouTube or a, a Twitch channel yeah. or whatever. It's just, it's awful. I, I, I don't like that idea anymore at all. I, I, don't, no. I don't think people should be putting themselves in that position. And like you say, you open yourself up to, you know, to liable and, and, and to lawsuits and all kinds of stuff because you've got no protection there. No. You know, yeah. You're in a bedroom with a kid doing an EVP session. That kid could say anything. You've constantly got to think about, okay, how am I protected here? Is there a witness? Is there someone with me? Is there, could this be misconstrued? It, it's crazy. You know, back in the 80s, you could do this, maybe. But now, in the world that everything's about, you know, lawsuits and stuff, that yeah, anyone, it's a anyone, nightmare. Anyone can say anything. Um yeah, no, there was no kid in there at the time. So I, just, I was just—I was there, and I could—I could, I no, 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 I could have gone I, through I, their underwear I, drawer. I could have gone through their clothes or something. Yeah. And it's like, what the fuck? They, anyone could say anything. Because, like, can you imagine getting yeah. your, your team getting rang up the next day? Oh, my my daughter's underwear is missing, or my my son's clothes are missing. Yeah. yeah. What the fuck? <laughs> what could you yeah, say? Exactly. What could you say? You, you, there's nothing you can do unless there's cameras in there filming while you're in there. You haven't got a leg to stand on. Awful. Hey, it is shocking. Yeah, and the fact that I look on YouTube and there's so many more chat people doing it. I yeah. thought I thought it was overabundant when it when people were looking at it when we were like doing it more often. Yeah. Than we do. Fuck me! I think there was there was a whole craze where it all dipped down and went virtually nothing, and then there's like everybody and their dog is doing it now. Yeah, it's risen up with. The, I think it's probably something to do with the fact that now you've got these. Um, like Netflix and you've got Amazon and you've got all these other that are running these old shows that it's kind of almost brought it back into yeah. um, into yeah. popular um, vision that people are watching it and stuff now and let's face it it's very cheap to make oh, you true. just get the camera out in the woods Wait, was, and, is it, what's it like, I'm a celebrity get me out of here is it a haunted house this year because they can't go to the fucking Australia yeah it's that castle in Wales isn't it yeah um, I don't know. It it it's tough. The whole situation's tough. Um, and while you know the idea of finding existence or proof of life after death might be the reason a lot of people get into this field, how what are you going to do with the proof when you got it? Who are you going to give it to? Who are you going to make believe it? What are you going to do when you find it? At the end of the day, I guess it just depends. You know your motivations for getting involved in it and. and yeah. So, what you, so doing. you yourself might have been so okay I've I've heard a ghost on a tape recorder I've got proof of the afterlife you go and talk to someone who wasn't there in this situation I've yeah. got the sound of the afterlife well who else was there uh, well can you prove that well, no <laughs> you've just got a sound yeah. on a tape recorder I mean shit that isn't proof <laughs> yeah, what are you on about you know for the people that don't want to believe no amount of evidence is going to be enough I mean you could have a video conversation with a ghost caught on video in front of you and they wouldn't believe it like it's come to that point now with the stuff you can do with photoshop and video editing you even if you had photographs you couldn't prove it like there's no what's the end game that's that's kind of how my mindset is now is like yeah you want to go and find this information and evidence and record stuff but what are you going to do when you've got it if you're just trying to convince yourself do you need to go and get another family involved do you need to you know it's it's made me think of things. I mean, I got in, interested in this field because I was seeing stuff as a kid. And as as you get into adulthood, you're like, well, maybe it was this and maybe it was that. And you try and rationalize stuff. And I've seen stuff as recently as about a year ago. 
but you constantly have got to be questioning yourself and go, okay, is it this? Is it that? Because otherwise, you're going to believe any old shit, and you're going to set yourself up for, um, you know, you're going to be deluding yourself. So I wanted to get evidence of, okay, is this is there stuff out there? Or is this all just shit I'm seeing? But you know, I have to ask myself, well, what am I going to do when I find that evidence? Who am I going to convince with it? There's not going to be one thing that empirically convinces mainstream science this stuff is real. It's not; no. it doesn't exist. No amount of proof could do that. No, unless a figure was to appear like in a public space where everyone is at, and the first thing everyone would go is like, "Oh, it's a publicity stunt." <laughs> yeah, it's a publicity stunt. They've used an, um, a hologram. There's always going to be. I mean, what they've done that I think it was for one of the Paranormal Activity movies. I can't remember which one it was, but there was a place in New York where they set up speakers above this, I think it was above the theatres that were playing the movie, and they were using focused infrasound to play bits of the movie in advertisement for the movie. So you'd walk through this particular area, and you would hear moans and and spooky stuff, and then you would walk out of that zone, and it would stop. And it was all a publicity stunt for them. When you can get the tech to that level, how would you ever know? You wouldn't. It was a real ghost. Or, you know, how many people yeah. are having stuff beamed at their house? <laughs> yeah. You know, with the amount of Wi-Fi toxicity we have, you know, Bluetooth um, items around us and Wi-Fi and routers and stuff, the sea of EMF that we sit in daily, how do we know anything of the ghost? You know, it's... Look at that house went to Bestwood where the amount of EMF coming off the back of their old CC um, TV... Oh man! It was in the middle of the room. Yeah, yeah. You know, but if we were the sort of group that was just looking for ghosts, hey, we've got a we've got our K two meters. Look at the effect it's having. It must be a demon. No, it's just a poorly shielded TV. You know, it's and I think in the end when we when we um, said open your windows more, you know, turn your fan eater off at night. Remove those um, energy-saving light bulbs from the side of your bed. Oh, measure five of them. Two at the back end, yeah. two at the end, and one yeah, above right. the What's hanging Tap really between low. the temple lobes when she slept. <laughs> um, and I, I'm sure she was like, oh, it feels like a changed room. But that was totally environmental. Yes, but how many groups could do that? They would be looking for proof of a ghost. Yeah, um, yeah that, you're right. They'll be sat there with EVP recorders and all that kind of stuff. Was and what was the other group? They said, "Oh, we had video of the ball bouncing down the stairs, the marbles, and we never saw that." No. Where was that proof? Why were we given access? To <laughs> I saw someone who was mentally ill, self-medicating on, I believe it was morphine, in a toxic soup of EMF, where when you make some sensible ideas and suggestions of what she could change, she was given resolution. Great. She was given resolution. That's the point. But if it's a real haunting, what resolution do you give the family? You've then got to go, well, they're Catholics, so we need to get someone in to exercise the how. At least we could give her something where she was like, those guys came, they did an investigation, and they gave me some ideas, and now it feels better. Cool. That's Brilliant. It. That's I'd do, I'd do that every day yeah, if I could help people. That's right. Absolutely. I, yeah. I, I just saw the clock down there, man. Do you know, do you know we've been talking about two hours, dude. Wow. <laughs> two hours, two hours, six minutes, forty-five. 
time flies when you're having fun. I do think we should do that. We should find a suitable video on YouTube and do a follow along and talk. Not just to trash it, but you know, sensible. What is this? What are you trying to do? What? I guess it's entertainment, isn't it? At the end of the day, and yeah. it's what they tell the family. If they're real families at all, they could all be actors. Who knows? Yeah, it could be. So, is there anything you want to use to to, to round up on here then? Because uh, I guess we've gone to the the paranormal rabbit hole. I, there was something I did want to touch on, and we we almost did earlier actually. Um, what was when, that? When we were talking about when, so when ghost stories are actually uh, resolved, and how they always seem to get brought back up again, and I had a particular um, example of um, of a supernatural case that is always brought back up, and it's the story of Flight Seventeen, uh, that the five bombers off uh, Fort Lauderdale that got lost in the Bermuda Triangle. Um, right. And that I saw it to, even today. There's a new documentary of what happened to them. I was like, but they found them. They found them in 2003. The Discovery Channel did a whole documentary about it. They found all five bombers exactly where they, they math- mathematically worked it. They wished they'd be. They ran out of fuel. He didn't trust his, his instruments at the time. He thought he was in a different place to what he was, and he followed a flight path. It yeah. was solved. And then they're going, oh, the Bermuda Triangle, truck these five, and then a rescue craft afterwards. And I'm going, why are they doing that? Stop it. <laughs> Done. <laughs> it's over. The, the mystery well, is solved. You know, there's thousands of planes that travel daily, probably not so much with the COVID now, through that area. And, you know, if it was like this demonic portal thing, you'd think there'd be news reports every day of planes dropping out of the sky and... The fact is, like you say, it was debunked. I heard one that... Well, they debunked they, they found the five planes. What happened? Yeah, yeah. weather conditions and um, something to do with thermals that caused some of the aircraft to crash. But in this case, if they found the planes, yeah, that's what's happened. Yeah. <laughs> they've crashed. Yeah, they run, run, run out of fuel. Um, they, clearly We've caught... all heard stories where something disappears and then reappears in a desert somewhere and you're like okay well we've heard these stories where's the proof of this yeah. i've never been seen any proof of that we've just heard the stories yeah the stories are what stick around aren't they so yeah in this case five planes went down and they're at the bottom of the sea yep. problem solved yep there's no that they were missing for more than 50 years or 60 years actually but, uh, the, the it's the same was... with the Amelia Earhart um, case. Yes. I watched something recently that, you know, the mystery had been solved. She overflew the island because she wasn't the best of navigators. Um, and they ended up on a very small island in the middle of nowhere. They found her diary. They were diary. captured by the Japanese. And there's some reports from Filipino people that were on the island. The Japanese found a shotter and they stuck her in her hole. Yeah, they, 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 they found her diary, they found her equipment, they found her bag and her jacket. And that was a yeah. long time ago. But that was always yeah. missed, and then she always popped up in pop culture as some kind of like, you know, dashing female hero, which I guess she was dead of a pilot for something for being a woman at the time. Um, but she was, uh, she's almost immortalised as this, uh, she got, she disappeared in the Bermuda Triangle or she lost on her maiden flight, whatever it was. I think maybe it says something about the human psyche that they even, they want to believe so even when you have a mystery, even when that mystery has been has been debunked or solved, they still want to believe. It's like almost that belief counterweights the evidence. It's like when we had Derek Akora as an example, um, that even though he was debunked several times, he was still packing audiences in theatres to see shows. And it's like it's almost like 
they become the cult of personality, that they believe the person, even though there's evidence to the contrary. There's evidence of these crash planes in the Bermuda Triangle, there's evidence of Amelia Earhart, on whatever mystery, but people ignore that to believe, they want to believe the mystery almost. Yeah, the mystery. Maybe that says something about the human psyche more than anything else. It's true. That we need this level of mystery in our lives because everything is so controlled by technology that some mystery, some mysterious element, part of the human mind needs mystery to believe in that magic, to believe in something out of our control, some mystical element, I don't know. But it seems to be something that's, that's stuck around with us for a very long time. Yeah, and not. even despite the technology and the stuff we have around us, we still somehow, for some reason, need it. Yeah, and if, even when the evidence is presented, when the facts are there, no, well, it might not be. No, it is. No, 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 it might not be. There's the planes at the bottom of the sea. There's it's, it's done. Uh, yeah, that's that's a that's a prime example. <laughs> you, you, you do see that replicated to various forms. Well, the yeah, and they this these shows the Bermuda Triangle. I can't remember the last time I heard of anything going down in that triangle recent years. No. But I remember growing up in the 80s and it was like, oh yeah, this flight of aircraft went down and this ship went missing and... And that this aircraft had like time slips and shit. 30 years of what is just... The Bermuda Triangle's just gone dormant. Like, <laughs> what's going on? Planes fly in and out of it to Florida every day. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> um, I think it was, the whole story about the magnetic storms were always the interesting part, weren't they? Yeah. I tell you, of all the phenomena that... I've looked into over the years of all the ones that I think are most likely to be true or provable are the cases of children where it's been reincarnation yeah, and they've got memories for past lives because the amount of research has been done by people and the verified information they've given that those children could not know. Um, I think of all of the ones that could be proven phenomena, that is the one that I think is got the most material to say there's something going on here. Yeah, because the kid has to actually—it's telling you details. It knows the streets, it knows the people, it knows the places. You could not know. I, I remember one case. It's the famous case of the guy in the U.S. whose kid is a. His kid turned out to be believed to be the reincarnation of a fighter pilot, and he knew the call names and nicknames of the crew. Like he he met the parents. The dad did some research, took him to a convention where there were some people from that group, from that little squadron he was in, and he recognised them. He knew the nicknames they had. There's no way he could know that. Yeah, and I think that's lots of cases where that's been validated. That I think of all the phenomena that are going to really be something. Reincarnation's the biggest one. Same with out-of-body experiences and near-death experiences. Look at Raymond Moody's work where, you know, the amount of people that had had stuff that they could tell about what was going on in the operating room and what was being done and who did what, and it turns out to be true. I think these are the ones, the phenomena, that have got the most chance of being something. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Because you can validate that. How can you validate a ghost story? But you can validate someone saying... Hey, I had this experience. I know that this happened in the waiting room outside, and it's like, well, yeah, actually, it did. Like that kind of thing can be validated. You know, the, the objects that some hospitals put on shelves and on roofs and stuff. Um, 
and they come back and say, yeah, we saw these shoes on the roof. And then they go and check and there's shoes on the roof. You know, that kind of thing. But with ghost stuff, as much as I want to believe it, how can you really... No, you're right. It's, it's true. The reincarnation one is an interesting one. The one I was thinking of, what I thought you were going to give the example of, I think it's an island where um, it's a mother and she's got like five children. Um, yeah. And then they yeah. and then they'd grown up and then there was this other person who came back and said, these are my five sons and she knew them all their yeah. names and what they, what they did. And where that was they another famous case. She actually knew the village layout. She knew stories about the children who are actually old and some of them have even died That's right. they, were, they, were, they, were, they were much older they were, they were certainly in their 60s or something when that yeah and i think she met one of the sons and he was originally like oh i don't believe this but he was convinced that this she knew stuff this was his mom he was talking to yeah um and there's also the story of the child i think it's the isle of sky or someone a little scottish kid and he lived in a lighthouse, and he could describe stuff about the lighthouse and the island and the dog that they had. And, you know, there's just stuff there that it's it's so e so easily validated that there's got to be something going on. Man, so I've got to, to, I've got to tell you about another case. Another case. I've, it's once this Thunderbolt thing is out of the way, it's, it's, it's my next investigation project. And it's, it's just as interesting. Okay, so... In Kirkby and Asheville, there's another phenomenon that's happened. Now, I had no idea that I'd even been on this location, because I didn't know. So this Billy girl, right, she's, so not only does she saw the, um, this, this crash, right, she says to me, do you know about the Hollywell incident? And I'm like, no. She says, go look it up. So it turns out there's this field in Hollywell, um, where in 1972 and 1974, um, there was a, there's a national get together of uh, brass bands, marching bands, okay, right. that were kids, that scout kind of kids, right, brownies or whatever. So they would all every year for like thirty years would all meet in this one field and they would do like a kind of a national competition show off. They all passed out. What on this field, right? So all all these kids passed out. We're, we're talking maybe like more three hundred kids. All the adults did. Horses, dogs, all collapsed. Horses, all collapsed, passed out. Wow. So, I was fucking. I was stood on that field like two weeks ago. Didn't even fucking know. <laughs> That's crazy. And what do they think it was? Hysteria is the official statement. Right. Not a mass abduction. This actually got this got massive national press as well. Wow. Massive national press, not even like. I mean, I can understand a small group of people having a shared hysteria moment, but horses, horses, dogs, dogs that's it. The entire people have this... collapsed. I don't buy that for a second. Yes, yeah, so my class I don't splash. know what it was. I've got no idea Me, what it was, but I, I don't buy that. So yeah, um, it was on Michael Aspel's Strange but True as well. I, I, I found. Oh, the I, used to, I used to love that series as well. Yeah, I found the episode the other day on YouTube, and I was like, oh my god. <laughs> I love those time slip stories as well. That's another big favourite of mine. Is what is going on in those situations? Like the famous story of the guy in Liverpool. He's running away from the security guard, runs down the street, and then boom, he's back in time. The guard says he disappeared, didn't know where he went, and then he. There are many. What is going on with these time slip stories? These are the things that really interest me now. I'm moving away from the ghost stuff, not because I don't believe it, but what are you going to do with that evidence? There's nothing you can do. There's no end game. No, Whereas, you know, if, if you investigate, you know, a case like you're doing with Kirby Nashville, you can follow that. You can meet the witnesses. You can 
get the information, the stuff you can do with it. Um, that's the sort of thing. Time slips and, and reincarnation are the things that I'm into at the moment. Yeah. Because the ghost stuff, you can only go so far. And like you say, you run into a whole minefield of legal implications. Yeah, and just personal um, implications. What, what, what you put yourself into. It's terrible. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Still... Do you need to go? Is that your cue? Uh, no, well, that, that was the, the missus going, oh, wait, no, got some food here. I've just come in. Even on there too far too long. So, uh, sorry, I got, I'm speaking to some guys from uh, Denmark tonight. So, um, All right, yeah. So go do what you've got to do. About... I've loved it. It's been a great chat. But we definitely should do the um, watch along. Yes, absolutely, man. So, is there any? If you want people to catch up with you, what's the best place people can find out what you're all about? Oh, all I'm all about. Well, probably Facebook is where my art. I've got a dedicated uh, Facebook page for my art, which is SM Creative. Um, or myself on Facebook um, to find out more about me. A lot of stuff on there. 